You wake up with a tear trailing down your cheek from a dream you can't remember. That's been happening more and more lately. Dreaming, emotions, like some sort of monster beneath your mental surface, the ripples are getting bigger. It's very disquieting. You can feel the subtle vibrations in Shori's membranes that means that someone is in the control center. The neurons around you have shifted from the passive moonlit silver to a strong, steady gold. Looks like Hoshi wants to get off this rock, you think. While it's a relief to get away from corporate, you know that the guidance system is perfectly workable now, and the Panopticon installation can easily be done in transit. To Thiel, to Mother, and that whole eldritch world of learning, hatred, and corruption that made you. You push the fear and lingering feelings of treachery deep into whatever subconscious storage bin this soul has and drag yourself into full wakefulness. Mercedes' advice seems burned into your processor. Making peace with Hoshi. Trusting Hoshi. Being Hoshi's what? Lover? Oh god, that's a terrible word. No one should ever use that word for anything ever again. Maybe I'll get lucky and instead of talking to me, he'll just pitch me out of the airlock and spare us both this next conversation. I'll take a cold death in space to having to talk about my feelings. You stare up at the control center. Maybe I'll just stay here. Maybe I'll mentally show Dez how to install the Panopticon and she can... Kaz Birkenthiel, just get up here and quit being such a baby. Mercedes' voice echoes down to the engineering. Um. Fuck my life, you think, trudging up the stairs. Maybe I can find a nice asteroid and go back to geophysical engineering for a bunch of miners. Or maybe a nice terraform project so far in the boonies that I'll be old by the time I get there and I can just run out the clock until my shell fells. You hesitate before walking into the control room. It doesn't seem like the same room at all. From this morning. Maybe it should be renamed Torture Chamber or something, you think, before Hoshi's long arm snags you and drags you into a hug at the threshold. The physical contact is a little overwhelming. Nope, a lot overwhelming. Everything about him is just so intense and visceral, your processors can't keep up. You try to push him away, but he doesn't notice, holding you tighter and rubbing, or maybe snuggling, his head against your head and neck. Hoshi, I... You start only to have him cradle your jaw and lay a very deep, very serious kiss against you and completely ignore what you were about to say. When he finally comes up for air, he looks deeply content and happy. You think he's happy anyway. You've never seen that combination of expressions on his face before, and something about him seems awfully relaxed. What's wrong with you? You ask compulsively. We're fighting, you know. Mercedes explained everything, he says gently. She said that you were just so deeply in love with me that you didn't know how to deal with it, and you're so distraught over the thought that I didn't love you back, or that you'd have to leave me, that you couldn't stand it. She said you just use anger and coldness to protect yourself, and that you're actually a passionately giving, committed person just waiting for the right relationship. You crane your head over Hoshi's oblivious arm to give a what-the-fuck look to Mercedes, but she pretends to ignore it and deftly escapes out of the control room with a wink to you. No. Oh, she, none of that. Nope, stop cuddling me, you idiot. Just, just stop. You push him off and take a deep breath. He moves as if to hold you again and you raise a warning hand. Nope, bad dragon. Go sit in the cockpit over there and don't touch me. We're going to have a talk and I can't think when you're, when you're gushing like this. His face breaks into another smile and he makes a move towards you. No, sit, stay. 
Don't touch. He laughs altogether in much too good of a mood and complies. Ground rules, you say. He nods. He looks like a puppy. A pathetically happy, innocently pure puppy. And, well, we know that just isn't true. First, you will not trade me to the Thiels to use as a bioterrorism weapon. He opens his mouth and you interrupt. You will not use me as a bioterrorism weapon. Is that clear? He raises his hand. Yes, you say, suddenly exhausted from the overwhelming stupidity of the whole thing. What? What if, and just hear me out, Burke, what if we use you as a temporary non-lethal bioterrorism weapon? What if, and just hear me out, Burke, what if we used you as a temporary non-lethal bioterrorism weapon? Just enough bad to get Chiyo out, but not enough to kill you, or most of Thiel. You narrow your eyes. Most of Thiel? Well, yeah, you know, I'm a self-taught bioterrorist here. Mistakes can happen. Cut me some slack. You roll your eyes. I'm listening. Fair. So Mercedes explained to me what you are. So what if we used your processors as a carrier for an organic computing virus? Not a straight bioweapon, but we're able to use your computer methods to just strip Thiel of all its information, knock out most of the organics with a little virus, and then poof, we're gone with Geo and Thiel waking up with big headaches and no information. You're a mentum, right? You can just download all of that into your cells like it's nothing. That's not exactly how this works, you mumble, trying to think of a way to tell him that to do that you would need snow, and a lot of it. But that feels like a fight, and you just can't face it right now. And this new plan seems almost reasonable, more reasonable than just dumping you in corporate headquarters like a walking dead typhoid Mary. There is an exit strategy for me in this plan, right? Hoshi, you're not just going to leave me? Burke, I... Hoshi again starts to get out of his chair. Nope, stay. You can talk from over there. Use your words. He sighs. Fine. Yes, there is an exit strategy. This is totally your decision. I obviously can't build a virus or program like that on my own, so you'll probably have to help. It's your choice. And I'll go with you into Thiel. We'll do it together. With Des. You won't just get dumped in there alone. You close your eyes, almost ashamed of the wash of relief, but warmed by it anyway. Okay, your eyes snap open. And you're going to get rid of the actual virus you infected me with right now. The only correct answer is, yes, Burke, and I'm so sorry for ever violating your body like that. His grin is a quick flash over his features before they settle into something a little more sheepish. I, um, I sort of already took care of it. When you were going through withdrawal and, um, you know, we... You let out a low hiss and scrape your fingernails against your cranial bones as you scour shaking hands through your hair in frustration. Hoshi, you have got to stop just doing things to me. Do you understand? It is pissing me off. Get it? 
He blinks at you as if surprised by your vehemence. But you didn't even know you had it until yesterday. How can you be mad about something you didn't even know I did for your own good? I didn't want you... In three quick strides, you reach Hoshi and drag him up out of the chair with a fist wrapped in his goddamn shirt that smells like goddamn pine forest in a goddamn winter, and you hate that it makes you think of that and that you don't know why it makes you think of that, which just makes you matter. No more, you hiss at him. No more mind games. No more making choices for me. No more weird psychosexual manipulation. You got it? Quit it. All of it. You understand? Hoshi nods, still looking ridiculously pleased with himself, though slightly confused. Say it back to me, you say, shaking him a little. I want to be real sure you understand what just happened here, because I swear to God, if you pull any more of this underhanded evil bullshit, I will... Well, I'll... Hoshi's smile gets wider and wider as you can't think of anything suitably intimidating to say. Fuck, you say in disgust and let him go. Just don't screw it up. I'm willing to try this whole work-together bonding thing because Mercedes thinks it's right and she can read thoughts, but as far as I know, you are a backstabbing, gigantic bad choice. Prove me wrong. Do you understand? I got it, he says, pulling you back to him and putting his arms around you. Honesty. No manipulation. Kindness. Don't worry. Mercedes already told me what to do. She says I just need to relax and be more myself. That you don't need any of the roles I play for other people. I get to be myself with you. You feel a level of sweetness and innocence that seems completely at odds with your perception of him radiating around you. It's decidedly pleasant and disconcerting. Monks are full of shit, you say, but it's through a tight throat. There's something huge and painful opening itself on the inside of your chest. Absolutely, he agrees. But maybe, just maybe, in this case, she might be right? Maybe. Muscles you didn't realize you had to start to relax against Hoshi and something very, very old starts to unclench from somewhere in you. The feelings are alien and satisfyingly painful. So, Burke, does this mean we're a thing now? I've never had an actual, you know, relationship before. What am I supposed to do? I guess, you mutter into his shirt. Don't fuck anyone else, and if you yell at me, it better be for a good reason or I'm going to sulk. And don't sell me to some evil corporation, or infect me with biological weapons, or blow up my stuff, or any of the other evil shit you've done. You can feel his chuckle rumble around you and more of those mysterious internal muscles unclench. Hey, I didn't go through with actually selling you. You start to get fired up and he pulls back. Fine, fine, yes, I got it, he says. Same for you. Only I don't mind when you yell. I think you're cute when you're getting all upset about nothing. Shut up, you say. Nobody likes you. Delighted, Hoshi holds you tighter and laughs into your hair. Oh, I love it when you talk dirty. Des. I don't know if I like switching perspectives like this as much as I thought I would. But I think it has to be said... Well, we'll see. We'll see if I like it or not. But I think that the memories for Des are really important because it gives kind of a perspective tie-ins for Chiyoko's spying and then tie-ins for like some of the philosophical ideas that she stands for. So kind of important symbolically. 
but it is a little bit clumsy, and I'm not sure how I feel about that, especially in second person. Anyway, Des, you're on your knees, hands bound behind you with the taste of blood in your mouth. It makes you sick to swallow, but you'd rather that than let her know how much that had hurt. You try to take a sidelong glance at the woman next to you, but the prefect sees. She stops her pacing and slaps you harshly. Pay attention, daughter, she hisses at you. I will not see this house dragged through the dust with your shame. Do you understand me? More blood rushes into your cheeks and down your throat, but you meet her eyes and stick out your chin. You can't stop this, mother. You know it. Be silent, she says, starting her pacing again. This time you're able to look over at the woman next to you. Her eyes are closed, her head down, her long white hair cascading over her shoulders in a heartbreakingly lovely way. Your stomach clenches. Mother, you say, I know you don't approve, but think of what this could mean for the house, for the company. Seema isn't a spy at all, and this stupid corporate feud isn't worth dying for. Mother stops her pacing. You can see her jaws clench so hard you're surprised you can't hear her teeth snapping under the pressure. Mercedes, you do not understand. That woman, and Mother juts her chin towards Seema, your Seema, is playing you, and you let her. You gave her access to the entire Wuxing map. All of our financial data, all of your pilot knowledge and client knowledge is now sitting in a data chip in that woman's head somewhere, if she hasn't already transmitted it. You're a sap, a rube. No, that's not... Mercedes, what can you not understand about this? She lied to you, and you have betrayed your family and the company. You see Mother shaking, and for the first time, doubt enters your mind. Seema hasn't moved or spoken. You stare at her, a growing wave of dizziness and nausea rising up your spine. But Seema, you reach out your mind and sense nothing but a sort of empty, clinical, hospital quality out of your lover's thoughts. Not her. Not your Seema. How? You turn terrified eyes to your mother. But I felt her thoughts. I checked, mother. You can't lie, my to mind. Can you? The last comes out as very young and very plaintive. Arrogant child, says mother. Of course you can. Just because you don't know how to do it doesn't mean someone else hasn't figured it out. What, do you think you're the strongest psionic in the world, all because you bear the dragon mark? Is that it? Mother holds your forehead and you don't holds her forehead and you don't dare touch her thoughts. You've never seen her this angry. For the first time since her guards dragged you into the citadel, you're afraid. You drop your eyes. Mercedes, what have you done? The words seem almost said to herself, and you don't recognize the emotion in it, but you do recognize the thoughts that come after it. Mother doesn't even bother to shield or hide them from you. No, you scream, trying to fling out a hand, even as Mother hauls Seema up by the throat and puts a blaster to her head. One of the guards, Marty, you know, note in the back of your mind, wraps his arms around you to pull you back. Easy, he whispers to you. It's almost over. It has to be done. You've known him since you were both children. You trained together, played together. You can feel his affection, his compassion, his sadness. Something about the contact makes a wall of despair break open inside you. You struggle, soundless tears pouring down your face as time seems to slow down. For the first time since this whole episode started, Seema opens her eyes. As your mother pulls the trigger, you can see her say, I'm sorry, 
even as a wash of love and honesty dumps into your psionic senses, senses from her. She didn't mean it, you say over and over again as blood and brains splatter against the side of the citadel walls and your mother lets the broken body slump against the floor. She didn't mean it. She didn't mean it. Your stomach convulses and you drown in your own screaming you, and you drown your own screaming in vomit that erupts over the blood and Marty lets you go down to your knees to hold what's left of Sema, body fluids and suffering covering your clothes and skin like multicolored dripping scales. Your mother drops a blaster and waits until you're quiet, rocking gently over the body, trapped in your own misery, before she says, Mercedes. You don't respond. Mercedes, she says again, this time wrenching your face to hers, ignoring your tears and the filth. Mercedes Lorandar, remember this. Look at what you've done and what you've made me do. Remember this pain and remember how you caused it. The house is all that matters. Do you hear me? You are House Lorandir of Wuxing. You are my chosen successor. You must protect the house, even against itself. Do you understand? You jerk away, pressing yourself up against the wall. No, you whisper, suddenly calm as if all the emotion had been sucked out of you instantaneously. I do not understand, and I do not accept. Your mother looks confused, as if you've said something sacrilegious. Said something, yeah, sacrilegious isn't good. I said something in a different language, but her expression sets <clears throat> and she lifts a hand as if to keep you quiet. It is a hard lesson, daughter, but all of us... No, you say, stronger now. I do not accept. You look down at the house badge sewn into, sewn into your flight suit, the familiar storm insignia wound with the whooshing wings, and rip it off, tossing it to your mother. I am no longer House Lorandir. I no longer work for Wuxing. I resign. Take it all back. Take everything. I don't give a fuck. And before your mother or Marty or anyone can put their hands on you again, you activate the dragon mark. A blast of air ricochets around the citadel room, slamming mother and her guards back, but catching you in a delicate eddy, flinging you out the window and down to the city below. The emptiness and the betrayal fit the storm carrying you down to the port. Freedom, physically at least, though nothing can ease the storm going on inside you. Episode 17. You bump your head for the third time against the control panel you're trying to install because Hoshi has gotten distracted and forgotten to hold it up. Hoshi, pay attention. You grab the panopticon casing and shove it into the correct position and physically move Hoshi's hands to it. There, now stay until I tell you to move. Yes, dear, he says, and you stop the install to glare at him. Don't call me that. Why not? It has a nice ring to it. What about honey or sweetie pie or... You wave a regulator driver at him. If any of those things come out of your mouth, I'll punch you. He looks disappointed. So violent. Aren't you supposed to threaten me to threaten to not have sex with me or something? You drop back into the panel so you don't have to look at him. He knows full well you'd never do anything so stupid. You can hear him laughing above your head and roll your eyes. Fine, so I'm a little bit physically oriented. Sue me, you think. 
You tighten the casing into place and then grab Hoshi to drag him down to your level. Listen, lover boy, I need you to grow new dendrites to connect to this organic matrix here. You shake him a little. Do you understand? Dendrites, myelin sheaths, gleons connecting right here. Do you think you can manage that? He sneaks a quick smile, a quick kiss, and smiles at you. Of course, dear, whatever you say. You open your mouth to retort when Mercedes' easy voice interrupts. Well, I see you two are getting along much better. Are we almost ready to leave? Uh, are we almost ready to sit out at full speed? Yes, says Hoshi. I've got the organs and parts Burke was nice enough to request ready in the cloning beds. He gives you another sweet smile as you fume in outrage. I just wanted to see you explain things to me one more time. They were ready, the dendrites? You overbearing, egotistical son of a... That's good, Des continues. I'm pretty sure Thiel or one of the corporates is going to find us today. I can feel the hunters out there and they're getting close. Hunters? You ask, sternly directing yourself away from Hoshi, intentionally irritating you. What are hunters? Hoshi snorts a little as he heads down into the medical bay to get the organic components of your graft. Dragon hunters, Burke. Humans genetically modified to use Sunyata genes to find more Sunyata and capture them. He gives Mercedes a look that you can't read. But then, Des would be a better source of information than I would. Don't scare the poor thing, Des. You know Burke doesn't have the strongest constitution. The monk sighs deeply as Hoshi leaves the room. You look after him, then to Des. Why do I always have the feeling I'm the last to know anything on this stupid ship? Shori groans a little in protest, and you pat her console in apology. Sorry, love, you're not stupid. Des? Hunters are specialty-trained corporate elites, usually in Wuxing. that are designed or modified for very focused skills. Some are designed to be programmers, pilots, operatives. They all have some set special secondary abilities, usually related to whatever they're supposed to be finding or doing. Some can hack anything with a certain operating system, for example. Others can find anything with a certain genetic signature. Some can have some limited influence on the physical elements, say, control air currents or shape stone. You know, just a very limited, very specific set of skills genetically linked to whatever they're supposed to be hired for. Ah, you say, so you think one of those hunters might be cued for Sunyata and that's how they found us? Maybe, she says slowly. They are using some kind of tracking device. But that trooper you saw in the core, she recognized you. So yes, they are looking for Hoshi, but I get the feeling whoever that hunter was definitely will be bringing you in with her. And there's a lot of concentrated interest in finding us. I feel a number of hunters, all very professional. They'll find us soon. She gives you a covert look. Whoever you were must have been very special. 
You shake off the little brush of cold that slithers down your neck at the thought. Well, fuck, you say instead until something else occurs to you. How do you know all this? Why did Hoshi want you to tell me? She lets out her breath in a huff. Yeah, about that. Remember when I said me and Hoshi were a kind of kin? You nod. I'm sort of yang to his yin, so to speak, she continues maddeningly. Maddingly? Maddeningly? I think it's maddeningly. Frustratingly, you raise an eyebrow to show you're not getting it. I'm a dragon hunter, Cass, or I was, for Wuxing. Specializing in organic sentient trafficking. I wasn't always a monk, you know. Who do you think brought you all those bodies in the lab? In your biotech lab. Girl Scouts? You blink. It takes a moment to register. Wait, what? You're here to kill Hoshi? You're on your feet. How? Why are you? Oh, obviously I'm not here to kill Hoshi. He and I had it figured out on the first day in the ship. He just thought it would be better not to let you know. It's how I was able to find him and you when we first met. It's how I was able to assist with the shell transfer and construction. And it's how I can do so much of the spooky monk shit that makes you so uncomfortable. She looks pensive for a moment. It's actually quite useful. And if my mother and me didn't have such a complex relationship, I'd probably thank her for it. Your mother? You ask, having trouble keeping up. My mother, she says, almost sadly. Prefect of the House Lurandar and the operations commander for the Wuxing Corporation. They mainly handle transportation, but starting a couple decades ago, transportation started including radioactive weights, bioweapons, odd corpses, and a number of other curiosities that put them in direct competition with Thiel for all kinds of drug deals that we probably shouldn't say out loud. She gives you a sad look. I probably helped contribute to the whole reason you and the rest of the Mentum were created in the first place. Me or, or Mom. I'm sorry. I... I don't understand anything, you say, almost in wonder. As Hoshi comes back into the room, carrying the biogel packs of dendrites. Yeah, he says without preamble. Gave me a little bit of a shock when I saw her tattoos and put it together myself. Mama always said not to trust corporate or religion, and Des is a twofer. Shut up, you say to him. No, wait, don't shut up. You had a mother? How does that work? No, wait, this is ridiculous. Neither of you two tells me anything. I don't know a goddamn thing about either of you. Hoshi continues with the install, flatly ignoring you, and Mercedes has an awfully calm look on her face for just revealing that she used to be some sort of corporate assassin designed to kill Sunyata. 
So first, I find out that the one-night stand I was just hoping to kill some time with until the drugs killed me is actually some kind of extinct demigod with delusions of magical healing powers. Hey, Hoshi says, popping up out of the console. Not delusions. Totally god-touched. Rarest psionic in the universe right here. You should be impressed. Shut up. Then I find that I'm actually the pawn in his lifetime of revenge against my own company, who I conveniently betrayed after getting all the useful information he'd need from me out of the database. That was very helpful of you, my love. Much obliged. Sorry about the hostage probable death confusion thing. Shut up. Now I find out that the one person in the world who I almost trust is not only a sneaky, mind-reading acrobatic freak with no concept of personal space, but also genetically designed to kill the one person I almost care about enough to be upset by that scenario. Aw, Hoshikus, did you hear that, Mercedes? I'm almost cared about. I feel like this is the start of something really beautiful, you know? Shut up. Will you two stop lying to me already? I mean, honestly, for a healer and a monk, you two do not seem to understand ethics or people management skills. I hate to be the adult in the room here, but this is fucking insane. You pause as the full absurdity of the situation dawns on you. I mean, for Christ's sakes, I'm an android. Granted, I mean, I have an organic computing matrix, but I'm not even human, and I'm lecturing two supposed sensitives on how to people. I just, you're, you're both lunatics. We had difficult childhoods, says Mercedes peaceably when you're finished. That, that doesn't, what, who are you two? Later, says Mercedes, cocking her head to the side. They're here. Episode 18, Des. You're very, very drunk. Or maybe stoned. Or maybe both. The world is a nice, fuzzy, blue-white, gratefully obscuring your memories of Seema. She's dead, you think at yourself for the thousandth time. Just let her go already. She's never coming back. Briefly, you wonder what you look like and if Seema would care that you've been mostly intoxicated for however long it's been. You can't remember, and you don't care. You palm the bar's data exchange for another drink, and a red light flashes. It doesn't register in your mind, though, and you just slam your fist into the credit reader harder a few times, but all that happens is that red light. You're about to give it another go when a stranger's hand captures yours, and you're wrenched out of your seat to fall half on the floor, half held up by the stranger. That's enough, miss. You should go home now. I don't have a home, you croak, wondering if he was shaking you or if you were just so dizzy that the world was only flexing in your brain. I ran away from home. You hiccup and feel moisture on your face. Ah, oh, sweet mother, sighs the stranger and leverages you back up to the bar stool. Look, kid, I'm sorry about your life, but you can't stay here. Why not? You say, suddenly belligerent. The anger feels good. Feels better than the drugs, actually. Feels better than anything you've tried so far. Can a girl just sit here and drink in peace? Let go of me. You try to whip your arm out of the guy's grip, but end up just falling over and smacking your head. Ow, you say. Come down here and fight me, cocksucker. 
I'm not I'm not scared of you. You throw me out. I'm not fighting with you, he says, patient-like, which makes the anger ten times worse. Are you, are you sorry for me? You throw out as you stagger to your feet. Are you, are you sorry for me? Because you think I'm pathetic, don't you? Is that it? Poor little rich girl. Can't handle her liquor. Can't handle her life. Is that, is that what you're thinking? I don't need none of that. None of it, you hear? You try to take a swing, but you catch nothing but air. At that moment, whatever fragile shell of consciousness or energy you had holding your mental shields up fail, and you can feel the whole bar. Everyone looking at you in various shades of disgust and contempt. You can hear them. Failure. Fuck up. Reject. You see yourself in their eyes, a shambling mess of a being, and it's just too much. You let out what could be a howl or a high-pitched whine, whatever common sound comes out of the wounded and the dying, and collapse to the floor. This time, you know you're crying. The tears are pouring out of you with waves of grief, self-hate, and crippling loneliness. Why doesn't she just kill herself, thinks someone next to you, and that thought penetrates the grief. Why don't I just kill myself, you wonder, almost in awe at the elegant simplicity. It would take care of all of it. It would be such a sweet relief not to have to live with this monster clawing out of your chest daily. Such a relief just to give up and let the world go black. You stumble out of the bar into the main street of a town you can't remember, on a continent you didn't know in the first place, on a planet that was just close enough to get to with whatever fuel was left in your ship. You stare up at the unfamiliar stars. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters anymore, you tell yourself and head towards the port. I'll just flood the engines with antimatter and let the thing explode in the hangar. No one will care. No one will even know I was here. I'll just fade away into nothingness. There's an old man sitting at your ship's hangar airlock when you get there, leaning against the wall as if he was waiting for you. Get, you say curtly. You don't want to be here in a couple minutes. No, he says conversationally. Why is that? None of your business, you mutter, and try to make your hands and eyes work together long enough to punch in your access codes. But you keep forgetting or fat-fingering the interface, and nothing but red lights greet you. You're swearing under your breath and crying again. The tiny spot of peace you'd bought with the thought of suicide melts under the insignificant irritant of not getting the lock open, and you can feel the storm rising up in your chest again. You blowing up half the port sounds like my business, young one, says the old man. You ignore him. For some reason, your brain feels even fuzzier than before, like a gray mist is separating you from your body, and it's getting worse the longer the man talks. Who said anything about blowing up anything? Go away, you whisper, exhausted from the effort, and lean your head against the lock mechanism. Just leave me alone. Can't. Why? You ask, not really caring about the answer, but just about anything would be better than the gray mist sweeping over you. It's my job. Your job is to annoy travelers with cryptic statements and arbitrary lectures? Shitty job, man. Your head is killing you and you slump down to your knees and are grateful for the cool metal against your forehead. 
Mm, sort of, I suppose. There have been worse descriptions. It suddenly clicks for you that you're no longer intoxicated. That gray mist was reality. You hurt because you can feel again. The drugs or whatever wore off, but too soon. You reach out a delicate mental tendril and find, to your surprise, that the old man is tightly shielded. You can't sense anything more from him than you can the computer console next to you. You're a psionic, you ask? Yes, among other things. Young lady, may I touch you? You rear back, jerking as he reaches for your forehead. No, don't. His hand stops. Are you doing this to me? Taking away the drugs and the... You lose the words and just make an abstract gesture to your head. Are you waking me up? He nods. Well, stop it, you shout at him. Just stop. I didn't... I didn't ask you to do that. I don't... I don't... I don't want... But you can't finish and you can't get the memories to stop rotating in your head. Again and again you see, can see your mother blast a hole in Sema, see the blood and viscera paint the walls, feel the stickiness and slick emptiness under your fingers. Your brain is locked in an endless loop. Oh, child. The old man gathers you up with his arms around you, rocking slightly. That's quite a burden to bear. Let it out. Let all of it out. If anything, the memories intensify. Your emotions amplify, and there's nothing but a maelstrom of grief, terror, disgust, and guilt burning through you until, gradually, it stops. You still have the memories, but they seem far, far away, almost as if they happened to someone else, and your insides don't hurt. They just feel empty and quiet. You look up to see the man open his eyes and release his fist. Sparking blue flames leap out into the air before dying away. What did you do? You ask, too surprised and confused to push him away. I took your pain away, he says, smiling at you. It's my job. I could feel you across town, and I thought I'd better come have a look at you before you did something drastic. He eyes you closely. Child, forgive me, but I saw most of your memories. The bad ones, anyway. You're alone? You lever yourself to sit upright as you nod. You still want to die, but the feeling seems to be retreated behind glass. Or maybe you're coated in the glass and just can't feel it as intensely. For the first time in months, you almost feel like yourself. <laughs> he gives you a rueful smile that you can't understand. I do understand, child. I do understand. Have you ever considered a life of service? With a capital S. You scrub your face. Oops. You scrub your face and stand up, stretching a little to ease the tension out of your spine. Why do I assume you're not talking about a gardening club or something? <laughs> well, I suppose you can garden if you want, but I can think of more interesting things to do. Service to what? You ask him doubtfully. What are you selling? Nothing, he says, opening his hands wide. You can see now he's wearing soft brown robes cut close to his body. They look old and worn and stained, whether with blood or earth, you can't tell. His leanness and strength belie the age on his face. You scowl at him. Don't scowl, Mercedes. Your face will freeze like that. Why don't you come with me? I don't go places with strangers, you say, especially not dirty old men. 
I don't blame you, he says. Men are disgusting, terrible creatures, especially Dhamma monks. And everybody knows you can't trust a Dhamma. A what? Dhamma. Yeah, I heard you the first time. I was giving you an opportunity to elaborate on something you obviously want to tell me about. Fine, don't. See if I care. He chuckles. Mm, you're one of those then, I see. Dhamma means temperance in a language long dead, though some are trying to keep it alive. Temperance, monk? You look down at yourself and remember the weeks of drunken fights and drug use. There might have been some sex in there as well. Most of it is a long blur of hurt, and you're pretty sure you don't care. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but I'm not exactly a model of the virtue. Exactly. He nods so hard you worry for his spine. That's exactly the kind of people we like. Life experience, you know? Very valuable in our line of work. You should have seen me in my younger years, before the shaved head. Just a holy terror without the holy part. He taps his skull for emphasis and gives you a wink. Besides, I need an apprentice who's not going to fall helplessly in love with my magnificence. I am a delight, you know. Healer to the weak and helpless, defender of the disenfranchised. Just think, you can grow up to be like me one day. You're not a great salesman, old man, but it makes you smile and something almost like recognition uncoils out of your subconscious. After all, what else were you going to do? No home, no family, no love, no life. Why not? He's smiling at you like he knows the answer and you quickly put up mental shields again, embarrass you forgot, and give him another scowl. It's not nice to eavesdrop. He shrugs. I can't help it if you forget to shield. That sounds like a personal problem. Besides, I like you, he continues. You got spunk. Or rather, you will, once we clean out all the crap you've let build up in your soul. A clean soul. That sounded awfully nice. It felt crusted over with sin and screaming sorrow at the moment. Almost a physical sensation. You stick out your hand. Fine. Deal. I'll join your little club. Not like I'm real busy at the moment. You sigh a little at the ruins of your life. What's next? What do I call you anyway? Ken Rezig. Young Lirander, he says, shaking your outstretched hand and not bothering to be polite about skimming your, skimming your memories. That's my name, not the plan. He looks at your ship. I don't suppose you happen to have a couple credits on you. I seem to have left my wallet in my other pants. And I don't suppose your ship works. You twitch an eyebrow. I think I may have just been conned. <laughs> you don't hear anything. Or see anything. Even when you call up Shory's censors with a kind of proprietary entitlement that earns a grumbling, hey, she's my ship from Hoshi. You ignore him. Nothing on externals. You turn to complain at Mercedes, but she's gone, and when you turn back, Hoshi has calmly installed himself in the pilot seat and is starting launch pro procedures. What are you doing? You ask. He gives you a droll glance. Obviously, I'm running away, which is what all good sunyata do at a time like this. But Dez is probably out there, and she can take care of herself, pet. Have you met our resident monk? Very capable young woman, if I do say so myself. You frown at him and then turn to snatch up Zubeda and head to the door. You're not going to kill them, are you? asks Hoshi in surprise. You imitate his droll look from before. Obviously, I can't have the rarest psionic in the galaxy get kidnapped for parts. Again. Well, it's only happened a few times, and it always works itself out.
trying to be a better person here. He mutters, but more for himself. You can feel the golden light and patterns of Shori's neurons change texture as he starts the launch. Just wait a couple minutes, you shout back to him as you tear towards Shori's hull to try and get a good position. Don't kill anyone! If you can help it. He shouts back at you. You roll your eyes and lift yourself into the hatchway leading to Shori's roof. Don't kill anyone, he says. Like I'm not the only one capable of getting the job done with these bunch of pacifist children. Who does he think he is, anyway? My programmer? My mother? Brain the size of a planet and they have me taking pot shots at criminals like some sort of... of... You can't think of a suitable analogy, which is fine, considering you've eeled your way out of the emergency hatch and are now prone, linking your cortex to the ACOG firing mechanism in Zubeda and tracking for Dez. Shori rumbles beneath you, the tension letting you know she's ready to fly, and you close your eyes against the sudden mental image of what will happen to your shell if she decides to take off with you hanging out here like lint. A messy, messy death, you think. When I go, I want to be dressed nicely, well-fed, snuggled in something that's warm, with a lot of colors, and maybe some pleasant music and some incense. A nice core download into something mechanical seems nice as well. Please focus, Cass. You're very far away from dying, echoes a strong, clear, feminine voice in your head. Be a deer and shoot a couple of these nice hunters for me. What's with all this non-killing all of a sudden? Be a deer and shoot a couple of these nice hunters for me. You grouse to yourself and intensify the scan. All you can see through the ACOG is a whir of wind, maybe a few plants in the jungle shaking, and occasional puffs of dirt or water or maybe fog. And if she would stay still for five fucking seconds so I could get a shot off, that would be just outstanding. Fucking monks. There. The blur of motion stops and you can see three hunters at the very edges of your targeting scanner. Based on the pattern, you can't tell if they're working together or not, but Mercedes seems to have grouped them for you to disable. Disable. So much wasting time. And Hoshi's not even trying to help. Let's put some emphasis in there. Between the time it takes you for your heart to lub and dub, you've emptied yourself of air and thoughts, and a tiny valve in your brain opens to dump a load of dopamine into your system. Three clean shots sing out into the jungle between the veils of air and shadow you know as Mercedes. Three figures hit the dirt in your scanner, one with a blown-out knee, another through mostly skin and viscera of its side, and the final punch through its right eye. You're fairly sure it can live through that. Its helmet and movement scream cybernetic to you, and you're reasonably confident that it's mostly inorganic anyway. Mostly. There's a deep-set rumble underneath you that's not from Shori. 
Pillars of stone seem to flow up from the ground, melting around Shora, Shori in lava-hot ripples you can feel wafting towards you. Don't damage her wings, you think, watching bits of magma melt through Shori's outer hull and feeling her scream in your head and under your feet as she tries to pull away from the lava, only to see it harden and freeze around her rear fins in a series of perfectly hexagonal crystals. You run to the back, but the heat is too intense, and you step back with your arm shielding your face against the burn. On your stomach, Cass. Now. Comes a familiar voice in your head as you drop prone and cover your head intuitively. You can't see what she's doing, but you can certainly hear something. What could be the largest combustion ever, or maybe a galaxy-class starship landing on top of you, shakes Shori and the air around you in a hideous, brutal wail. Don't move, she says again. As if I could, you think, as a physical column of air seems to be freezing, rising, whirling all around you, intensifying the shriek and the pressure inside. You can feel your eardrums trying to explode and dutifully change your internal homeostatic pressure to try and keep up with whatever's happening around you, but you keep your eyes tightly closed until a new sound mingles with the shrieking. It's the sound of bones breaking, or the kind of cracking you'd imagine precipitates an avalanche. You can feel the cracking inside your shell as if your own structures were breaking apart. There's an almost infinitesimal increase in wind and a violent pressure drop as the cracking changes to the sound of shattering explosions reverberating around you. And then suddenly, the world goes silent. It's an illusion, says Mercedes' mind voice. Sounding impressed. A strong one. I've never felt one this powerful before. Give that a little emphasis. A delicate patter of something hard and cold starts to fall around you, and you tentatively look up. A blue-black cloud of what could be earth and hail seems to be disintegrating over you in a mist of melting ice and ball lightning. The cradle of frozen earth around Shori is gone, blasted out into a crater, freeing the ship. That doesn't look like an illusion to me. You think at the monk, but she doesn't respond. Shori shifts and you can feel her atmospheric burn amp up as she starts to levitate and you quickly squirm your way back down into the hold, carefully securing the emergency stoma. As you make your way towards the control center, you feel a gust of wind, and turning the corner, Mercedes is on one knee, taking deep breaths as Hoshi completes the burn and blasts out of the lower atmosphere. You look down on Mercedes consideringly, 
absently shifting Zubeda more comfortably to your back. I need to make a better harness for her so I can just wear her all the time. Maybe a pistol, too, if these two are going to insist on making me participate in these kinds of playdates. Des, you say, I think that's the first time I've ever seen you actually work up a sweat. She's busy breathing and doesn't acknowledge you with anything more than a wave of her hand. But with her other arm, she reaches into her sleeve and hands you something. For a moment, you think it's a prayer book or some kind of religious object. It has that kind of dark, sacred quality to it. But the sizzle of an energy field when you touch it and the specific telltale thread of a DNA sampling prick against your finger tells you differently. It's your tracking technology, confined to a tiny data pad keyed to a specific DNA pattern. You close your eyes. Can I manage to invent anything for good? Or are all my discoveries going to come back to me with regret, like this one? Honestly, I wish I'd never done any of these. You stare at it for a moment. The design was very different from your original workup, but it was definitely the same soul. You glance at the Panopticon panel where the original tracking software now lives and make a grinding sound in the back of your throat. If they are using the same technology, they're going to find the same place. They're going to find us. This isn't fair. I never wanted any of this. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Hoshi clears his throat. Pet, would you mind telling Shori where to go? I don't know how to use that new thing you've installed, and I'd like to get a moderate head start on the hunters. If it's not too much trouble for you, you know. Shut it, you say. But walk over. To activate the tracking software and target feel. Or rather, target Chiyoko with Hoshi's DNA. You can't help the creeping feeling that you're just another hunter, just another corporate henchman hunting a dead species to extract liquid gold out of what used to be a living thing. A quick flash of the first day in the biopharma department. You clean out your mouth in the lab sink and try not to look at the stacks of bodies or at the bubbling mess of extraction chambers. The director, Sonal, pats you on the back gently. Don't worry, he says, with the kind of sadness you couldn't recognize at the time, but do now. You get used to it, probably far too quickly. You don't understand the expression on his face then, but you certainly do now. I'm sorry, you say suddenly in the silence, mostly to Hoshi, but a little to Des. I'm sorry for making us the way we were. Hoshi glances at you. What, the tracking software? You rub your forehead. Everything. The software, the snow, the market for all of it. I'm sorry. When you look at Mercedes, she's sitting comfortably cross-legged, smiling at you with what you're uncomfortably sure is pity. You close your eyes. I am so, so sorry for everything I've done. And then as the images of the bodies and the labs rise up again, and everything I didn't do. I forgive you, Burke says Hoshley lightly, almost flippantly. I was just barely manifested when you and your company killed or tortured my family, so I've never known different. Unhelpful, Jiro, admonishes Mercedes. Thank you, Cass. She smiles at you. That's a beautiful first step in redemption. You scowl, immediately uncomfortable with the vulnerability. Who needs redemption, and why couldn't I kill any of those hunters? Hoshi makes a low whistle. Glutton for punishment, aren't you, Burke? Kill one of those corporate hunters, they send two after you. Nobody wants that. He stabs a thumb at Mercedes. 
She's probably the only reason we got away, anyhow. I certainly can't do much until someone touches me, and then, well, things have a habit of getting weird. You snort. Weird. Sure. Sexual assault and narcolepsy weird. You're the devil. He gives you a quick grin. Well, aren't we going to piss off a whole bunch of corporate once we walk into Thiel? How's, in, how's that any better? Which is why I was going to destroy the whole station, Hoshi says, almost frustrated. Mercedes seems against that for reasons. What are the reasons we can't do the easy thing again? Mercedes uncoils from her meditative stance and sighs. We'd have to sacrifice Burke, and healers shouldn't treat life like it was inconvenient. You know, every time you kill someone, your abilities decrease, and frankly, I think that'd be a crying shame. I haven't ever met a biopsionic as strong as you before, especially not a full healer. Rarest psionic in the galaxy, indeed. Don't piss it away on needless suffering. He frowns a little, almost to himself. Somehow that seemed much more convincing when we were talking about it earlier. It's pretty tempting to just... I will not be used as a bioterrorism weapon, Jiro Hoshi, you hiss at him. I am almost, almost okay with the whole Trojan horse unfinished code thing to shut down station operations while being romantically attached to you. I am not okay with becoming some kind of suicide bomber to your dying family while you're fucking me. No means no, you psychopathic asshole. Hoshi blinks, almost taken aback by your vehemence. Okay, okay, fine. I mean, we could stop the fucking if that would help with the bioterrorism thing. He pauses to raise a hand against your immediate bottled outrage. But I, I think I understand your point. Noted. No bioterrorism, and I kind of like the whole relationship deal. Fine. But technically, I think I'm a sociopath, not a psychopath. I mean, I can sense your feelings, and I care about them. Technically, I think. How reassuring, you mutter to yourself. A healer who can care about others' feelings. Hallelujah. And here I thought, all healers were do-gooders with hearts of gold, not barely restrained sociopaths with confused moral compasses. Hoshi bursts out laughing. See, that's what I like about you, Burke. Everything you say sounds like the comedy version of a philosophical essay. Difficult childhoods, says Mercedes again. Takes years of therapy to work through all this. All what, you snap, and then promptly throw up your hands to stomp out of the room. You know what? Never mind. I'm sorry I said anything. I'm sorry I even exist. I'm not, Hoshi calls after you with laughter in his voice. I haven't gotten laid this much in years. It doesn't even hurt. It's great. I hate you so much, you whisper. Episode 19 Hoshi is about a billion degrees of heavy breathing surrounding you. You wake up as an internal tr sensor triggers your heat overload. He's tucked you firmly underneath his arm and leg has enveloped you to the point of claustrophobia. You shove him to one side and drag enough blanket to be a suitable replacement for your body and ungracefully extract yourself from the nest. You can't tell if he's awake and humoring you or genuinely capable of sleeping through that much trauma and you decide that you don't really care as you quietly pull on clothes and leave the room as delicately as you can. Shori's insides are the delicate moonbeam silver. The mild 
moonbeam silver of autopilot, and you can feel the rhythmic vibrations that she tells you, that tell you she's fine, fine, on her own. A quick link to the Panopticon shows she's still on course, and there's a new update to the map with an uplink from the Galactic Survey Group. You patch it mentally and head to the control center to make sure it doesn't interfere with the current trajectory. To your surprise, Mercedes is sitting in one of the pilot seats with the view screen active, not targeted to anything in particular, just open to the current field of view. Good morning, Des, you say, checking the new mechanical display Shori consented to have installed in the first mate's chair and feeling deeply appreciative that you don't have to stick your hand in goo with her organic matrix. It makes you feel far too intimately connected to her, after all. After all, you two aren't that dissimilar. Good morning, Kaz, she says, continuing to stare out the window. Out the viewfinder. Still having trouble sleeping with Hoshi, I see. She didn't say it as a question, and you didn't see fit to correct her. I have no idea how any sentient creatures can manage to sleep together. It's extremely uncomfortable, and if Hoshi didn't like it so much, I would love to move back into the engine room. I'm sure he wouldn't mind that much if you did. You roll your eyes at the thought. It would be a guilt trip. He's so pathetically grateful for any amount of affection. I have to say, I really didn't see our whole relationship changing like this. You know, I thought it would kind of be more exciting, less needy. I mean, he is supposed to be a sociopath with delusions of grandeur, not whatever this is. Hmm, is all she says for a while. Then, has he told you anything about himself? No, why would he? Have you asked? Asked what? Oh, Kaz. She sighs, laughing a little, and leans her head back into the chair with her feet tucked up in lotus around her. You're a terrible person. You know that, right? I mean, you haven't been personing very long, but you just suck. Is that your spiritual opinion, you ask, a little hurt, even as you tell yourself that you're not even human, so what do you care? Aren't you goody types supposed to see the best in people and tell them they can be good too? Is that what you want me to say, she asks. Do you want to be seen as a good person, to be spiritually validated? No, you grumble. I was just making a joke. Monks are the worst. You pretend not to see her sneak a contemplative glance at you and only look at her when you're sure she's settled back into her meditative posture and is thinking about something else. Something on your mind, then? You don't usually sit up here in the middle of the night to do your meditations. She doesn't answer, but, she, but you can tell she's not ignoring you. More like trying to find words, I'd guess. You think. The thought that she was actually talking to you, treating you like a real person, makes you warm inside, even if she does yell at me a lot. Does it have something to do with the lava thing trying to eat us back there? The question comes to you in a burst of inspiration that's fairly unfamiliar, almost like it passed from your subconscious to your mouth without passing the approved analytical filters. It surprises you just as, it, just as much as it seems to surprise her. Yes, she says. Yes, it does. Why do you ask? I couldn't help but notice that the lava thing has a similar weird vibe as some of the stuff that you do, you shrug. Just a feeling. A feeling? Kaz, that's a huge step for you. Well done. You shrug, but you like the praise. It feels good. A lot of things have been feeling good. Things that have nothing to do with science or math. 
Although, maybe I could explain some of the relationships and changes with math. That might be an interesting project, if we survive this nonsense, of course. Thank you, you say, and wait. You're positive that she can feel your interest, and something about all of this feels very familiar. She seems to be having a hard time starting. Was that a Dhamma monk or whatever you are? Do you know that person? Why are they working for Thiel or Wuxing or whoever sent those people? You perk up a little. Do you know who sent the hunters? I couldn't see any insignia or, insignia or anything on them. Thiel, she says. They were definitely from Thiel, and they were definitely tracking Hoshi. Hmm. But you're right. There was a monk with them. Maybe. Though she didn't feel exactly like any Dhamma I've ever met. Because of the lava? Your stuff is all with air and atmospheric stuff, right? Is, is that what you mean? She waves you off. No, the element doesn't matter. Some monks don't even manipulate elements. The Diana moves in whatever way it wants to within you. It has nothing to do with supernatural powers. No, this was something else. This was the way she thought. So wild. I've never encountered anything like it in a monastic. Not even you or Hoshi think so vividly. It's very unusual. She can't be Dhamma. But I don't know. She trails off. What? You ask. Is there an opposite of Dhamma? Like, instead of temperance monk, there's a wild monk or something like that? Is that a thing? You have a moment of cognitive dissonance as you realize you just asked if something associated with religion existed, as if it was real. Ridiculous. Bunch of lies and psionic magic. What has gotten into me lately? I have no idea, she murmurs and stands abruptly. I have to be alone for a while. Please don't bother me. She glances at the screen again. I have a feeling we're going to get company shortly. We're being followed. Her face softens for a moment as she looks at you and you wonder what expression you're wearing that makes her do or that. Don't worry, Cass. Hoshi is going to be fine. Trust us. You scowl at her as she heads out. I don't need to be comforted, you shout after her, but she ignores you. It's irritating. Mm, all right, Hoshi is up next. Hoshi. You're alone, briefly wedged behind part of the ship and the red earthen walls that make up the port Captain McKenna had set down in yesterday. But yesterday seems much, much too far away. You risk standing up to look for the others, only to see the laser sight of assault rifle target and shoot at where you were. A cold ball of desperation seems to be blocking whatever's left of your esophagus, and you lean into your forearm, trying the communicator one more time, as if sheer persistence would make it get through the magnetic field blocking communications around the mercenary group. Uncle Kiros, you hiss into the communicator. Where are you? Where are the others? There's the usual whine of white noise and static, but this time, miraculously, Kiros answers, and you almost pass out in relief. Hoshi? Hoshi boy, is that you? Where are you, lad? I'm in the port hangar, you say, trying not to babble as you glance down at what's left of Captain McKenna and the rest of the limbo crew. Everyone's dead. Where are you? Can you come get me? You peek out towards the mandate peace officers waiting for you at the hangar gate and are greeted with another round of fire. 
There are mandate everywhere, Kiros. There's no way we're getting out of here without some kind of miracle. Is the ship still there? Does it look too damaged? Kiros's voice wavers and stutters in the magnetic field, but you can hear it, and you can feel a wash of gratitude for the sound of his voice in the dark. I can't see it very well, but most of the fire hit the people, not the ship. You have to swallow hard. You hope that Kiros isn't going to tell you what he thinks he's going to tell you. It's not that you don't want to do it, but it just hurts so much. The people? Well, hell's bells, Hoshi boy. Just heal them. What are you waiting for? An invitation? <laughs> Fix them. Then get the ship ready. Daiki and I are still moving through the city. His voice fades out briefly, and you can hear screams and what could be the sounds of pursuit and the ricochet shots of laser pistols. We're only a click away. Daiki's stolen a sonic cannon, so we should be there sooner rather than later. Hold out, Hoshi. Heal everything. Get the ship running. Your hands are shaking when you look down at the bodies that you've managed to collect in your little shelter, and you close your eyes against the ones still outside. There's blood everywhere. It's splattered on your face, your clothes. Your arms are soaked into it up to the elbows. You open your mouth to try to explain to Kiros. Uncle, please. It hurts so much. You're cut off. A young, harsh voice interrupts. Is that the boy? He asks Kiros. You can't hear your uncle's reply, but the young man comes back over the calm. Look, pissant. Fucking heal the crew and do your job, or I'll find you, and I'll ram a power sword so far up your ass we'll use you as a fucking flagpole. You get it? You're only good for fucking and healing, and we don't have time for the first one. Get it together, or I'll kill you myself. You understand, boy? Yes, you stutter. Yes, what? Daiki yells. Yes, sir, you say and swallow again, trying not to let your shoulders and legs start shaking. Why does everything have to hurt so much? You ask, rubbing your thin, blood-stained hands together nervously and wishing that you had more medical packs. That you hadn't used up all your Lazarus patches. Good. If Captain McKenna isn't alive when I get there, boy, you know what's going to happen. Yes, sir, you say, but your stomach drops. The captain bled out moments ago. So did most of the rest of the crew. Chris, Kiribo, Gwen, Damocles. You're too young and too little to be able to heal that many dead people while taking fire from the mandates. You know that. You also know that if by some miracle you survive and Daiki finds you, he'll beat you or rape you to unconsciousness, strap you to the hull of the limbo, and let you burn up in the atmosphere in a horrific nightmare. It won't be the first time you've seen him or McKenna do something like that. The mandates seem to have stopped firing. You can hear shouting and movement on the other side of your shelter, but you can't bring yourself to pick up a rifle and fire back at them. Maybe they'll just assume we're all dead, you think hopefully, and rig another couple barricades around yourself, McKenna, and Kiribo. Chris and the others are still lying out in the hangar bay. You put them out of your mind. You put your hands on McKenna and take a deep breath. You've long ago used up all the first aid and stim packs your little jump bag had. You really, really wanted to avoid this, so you tried to do the best you could, but no help for it now. You close your eyes. 
Instantly, you can feel your shell open up, absorbing energy in a strong, steady stream around you, funneling it into the heart of your real form. You can feel your body lengthen, change as you run your, run your hands up and down what's left of McKenna, but there's not enough of her to keep this cursory contact. You morph your shell, lying on top of her, taking her wounds into your own body, feeling the screaming hemorrhaging, the broken bones, the shattered arteries in your own shell as you flood it with your essence, letting your real body come apart and flow into the spaces between your shell and McKenna. Her pain becomes yours, your soul becomes hers as you knit up the pieces of her body with your essence and make them real. But more than that, you have to go to the dark place, the place in emptiness where souls go. Fear makes your shell break out in a cold sweat and you give yourself a moment to mentally keen in anguish and betrayal before remembering Daiki and flinging your spirit into the bardo. You have a brief hope that McKenna's soul could be somewhere safe, that maybe against all odds, she'd actually acquired some merit in her life that would mean you wouldn't have to follow her to that place. But no luck, the path is clouded. You can see hungry ghosts of people she's killed looking for her, looking for you, tasting her on your skin. They're wailing and you can't help but feel deep sympathy and compassion for them. You'll probably want be one of them in a few years anyway. But you follow the soul path deep into the bardo. She's there, her essence huddled into a ball as something tears bits off her in a great tears bits of her off in a great hungry gulp. You can feel her pain as your own, physically and psychically, and here you can see all her past sins coming to rip her apart moment by moment. You put your soul around her and let the ghost rip yours instead. McKenna, you try and whisper. And this time, she looks up at you. Hoshi? She recognizes you, but it's fading fast. Without asking permission, you scoop up what's left of her essence, her energy, and feed it into your own blending her and you until there's no difference and fling yourself off the path into the yawning void below, hoping that your shell is strong enough and anchored enough to catch you as you strain desperately for the tiny silver cord that links you to it. There's a catch, a moment of disorientation, then the pontifax does its job, catching and holding you securely as you flood McKenna's body with what, with McKenna's essence, and exchange all of her pain for your own whole. And open your eyes. McKenna is breathing, alive and safe. You are racked with agony, splitting your shell and your essence into what feels like knife shards of wounding, stopping you from breathing, from moving, from doing anything but moaning and letting tears leak down the tracing of your human mask. Someone shakes you lightly and you manage to get a little consciousness back. It's uncle. You feel yourself going limp in relief. Not yet, Hoshi, not yet. He looks up and behind him quickly and you can feel the pounding of heavy artillery around you. Daiki is taking back the ship. We need to get you and the rest of the crew on board so you can finish healing them, all right? You whimper and don't notice the tears. Kiros pats you. I know, I know it's hard, Hoshi, but you have to try to be strong. Toughen up a little. Don't worry, I won't let Taiki touch you or see you while you work. But you have to get it done, or we're both screwed. You understand, Hoshi boy? Kiros looks at you intently, 
and levers up your frail shoulders with both his hands. I know you're still a little, but you have to grow up quickly. Toughen up. There's nowhere else for us to go, he says, and you feel something inside you hollow out, disappear, as if exhaustion and fear have made you invisible. You understand, don't you? Yes, sir, you whisper and manage to roll onto your knees. I understand. The cabin is calm. Hoshi is next to you, but he's quiet and withdrawn. You can't tell what he's thinking. What are you doing? You ask into the silence. You're too quiet and it's disconcerting. He flashes you a sweet smile. Thinking. Well, you shouldn't do too much of that, you mutter. Your ideas are bad for everyone. He makes a pouty face. Burke, come on, I apologize for the whole virus thing. I'm pretty sure most of your organics are fine anyway. Don't be so sensitive. You glare at him. Those quote-unquote organics you refer to are data streams, numbskull. You can't just introduce a viral pattern and expect to have clean data after that. Who knows what you've corrupted all in this? You wave towards your body. You pause for a moment, appreciating the context of what you've just said. I mean, you know, besides the usual corruption. He clutches his heart dramatically. Burke, my love, was that a joke? Are you learning humor now? Shut up, you say grimly, feeling that the usual momentary disorientation as your programming fights with whatever this new thing that you are and leaves you pleasurably insecure. No one likes you, you say instead. He smiles, but the banter is already drifting out of his head. And you can see his thoughts turning inward. There's that blue-green ripple under his mask that tells you he's disturbed about something. What is it? you ask irritably. There's something worrying you, and it's making your mask all wobbly, which is gross. Either keep it to yourself and fix your face, or tell me what's going on. I'll fix my face, love. No fear. That's not... Oh, hell. You slump back into the control chair and glare at Shory's view screens. That outcome was not what you had been hoping for. Manipulating sentience was much more difficult than anticipated. Are you worried about Chiyo? He gives a little start at your, her name and looks at you sideways. How do you know her name? You shrug. You cry a lot in your sleep. That was the only name you call out that doesn't sound like it hurts. Chiyo. He tastes the name as if he's almost forgotten it. No, no, I'm not worried about Chiyo. That answer surprises you, and you can feel your face making that implosion-style eyebrow-forehead combination Mercedes does when she's surprised, though that's rare. You're not worried about your captured sister who's being milked for Sunyata essence to power an entire underworld of illegal drug activity that kills its users in terribly messy and unhygienic manner? Uh, I guess I sort of thought that's what we were out here for. He laughs at you, but you can't take too much offense because it's deep and velvety and you like the way it sounds, even with the hint of rawness at the edges that catches your attention. Is that what you thought we were doing? Well then, I can't. I suppose I can't blame you for being surprised. Are you bullshitting me again? You ask, deeply suspicious. What's the reason then if we're not going to rescue her? You flex your hand in Shori's interface and feel a burst of response from the new navigation system. I found the headquarters. We're going to be there soon. You are very clever, he says, and you sigh. 
I wasn't asking for confirmation of my brilliance. I know it, you know it, Mercedes knows it, even Thiel knows it. I'd like you to be straight with me for one fucking second. He chuckles. Be straight with you, huh? Don't laugh, you monster, and I didn't mean it like that. What are we doing? Are we even going to Thiel? Are we even going to find Chiyo? Maybe, he says. Then, after a pause, you don't understand. Maybe not. You wish you had something to throw at him, but you keep the control room squeaky clean, and Hoshi's not allowed to do any of his experiments in here anymore, and you're out of luck. Still, you hate it when he gets into these water moods. His thoughts seem to ebb and flows in ways you can't tell, and there's nothing but darkness under the waves when you try and look down. You sigh. You're being difficult. He doesn't answer. Episode 20 Mercedes is waiting for you when you ease yourself down into Shory's engine room to start making the adaptations needed for the plasma field. Thiel's security is no joke. Seeing another person in the dark, cavernous gut of the ship makes you squeak and flatten yourself against the wall. Des, holy crustacean mandible, you scared me. The monk unfolds from her posture and lets out a little breath of what you can only assume is amusement. Holy crustacean mandible? I'm trying out new exclamations since religion is dead and I swear too much. You cough a little. I mean, except for your religion, of course. I'm sure that's still useful. I'm sure it is as well, she says, but it's distracted. I needed someplace quiet and out of the way, and you seem to like it in here. She turns to look at you, and you're surprised by the intensity of her stare. You're caught up in her eyes. They're silver, like, like glowing silver in the dark. Have they always been like that? You wonder, and you have the disconcerting sensation she's opening up your skull and rifling through memories or thoughts or whatever is in there. I am, says a familiar sound in your head. I needed to know some things. Well, get out, you say crossly, and stay out. It's rude and unpleasant. She ignores you. Out, you say again. What is it about everyone violating my boundaries today? You're in a snit. Hoshi's all moody. The only one halfway decent to talk to is Shori, and she... There's a sudden grind, and you both feel the engine sputter to a halt. Oh, for fuck's sake, you blurt. What is wrong with everyone today? Whooshing, she says. You stare at her. Whooshing, she says again. I can feel it. Someone knows we're here and where we're trying to go. She looks up at Shori's membranous ceiling for a minute. I think it's going to be much easier than we thought to get into Thiel. You scowl at her. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? Isn't Wuxing trying to kill you? What does that have to do with us? Can't you just fly over, do some punchy-punchy, and call it a day? Des grants you a brilliant smile as she moves past you up into the engine bay. Punchy-punchy, huh? Well, why not? I haven't had anything interesting to do in a while. See? You call after her. Why does everyone need me to tell them what to do? Go get them, tiger. You follow her, the plasma injector forgotten. When you both reach the control center, you can see Hoshi in deep concentration. The organic interface is lit up red, which makes his face look sallow and menacing in the relative darkness of the cabin. You glance up. Shori's neurons are sparking erratically, and the normal, sunny lighting has disintegrated to a dull orange, only sporadically blipping on and off. You sit in front of the new panopticon, hoping it's just an interface glitch, but you're fairly sure it's not. 
You do good work after all, and this doesn't feel like a mechanical error. Even as you tag the self-diagnostic key command, you hear Hoshi exhale in that soft, high-pitched way he has when he is in deep, profound pain. You scowl. You've heard that sound an awful lot lately. Mercedes leans over you to look at the mechanical display, but you haven't translated it into anything a proper organic can read, so she just sees dribble on the screen. Kaz, she starts. I know, I know, I know. Shush. Give me a second and make it palatable, softy. You activate your internal translation program and link to the output, giving her visual and a ship condition dashboard. Most of it is not good, but you're not expecting the little hiccup that comes out of her. What is that? She says, pointing to a small blip on the Cosmo map. A gas giant, you say, reviewing the specs in your mind. We'll probably have to set down there, I think. I think Shori has a virus or something. You squint as you review the internal landing codes in your mind, not realizing that your internal interface was translating to external body language. It's a new thing for you, but Mercedes notices. What? She asks. Well, didn't you say someone was following us? She nods and you run a few more data lines in your head. It, this virus looks an awful lot like the one Hoshi was going to use on Thiel, only, you know, better, and you squint again. And I don't know, more super villainy? You don't have to look at her to feel her eye roll. Cass, I don't understand what that means. You shrug. Look, Des, I don't know what to tell you. It doesn't feel like a normal computer virus. It has definite organic overtones, but it also feels way more virulent. Like, ask the demented doc whenever he wakes up. You scowl again. Although, if Shori is sick, Stud Muffin is also infected. I don't know how he could use the same interface and not be. You glance back at Hoshi, who is still ramrod straight in the pilot's chair. The interface was no noticeably quieter now, though you're pretty sure that's not a good thing. You let out a breath and jack into Shori directly. You're expecting a cool rush of her personality, the same welcoming interest and affection she normally gives you, but her brain is quiet, at least this portion is, and hot. Your digital self registers nothing but heat and a kind of stifling darkness you don't recognize. Shori? You call? Shori, honey, I need to do a little antivirus work, but it'd be easier if you were awake for this. There's no answer, and the heat is starting to make you dizzy and uncomfortable. You shrug to yourself and kneel onto the void, packing, unpacking your cleanup software like a backpack of code into the dark, writing the lines with your finger. Each command glows with different colors where you touch Shori's mind, but not much changes. You expand the commands and put it on a loop, manually shutting down the organic inter interfaces, effectively putting Shori to sleep, and route all physical mechanisms to the panopticon. You open your eyes. Des is peering at you uncomfortably close. I'm fine, I'm fine, you say, waving her off. Say, didn't you mention you were a pilot or something back before you got religion? She nods. Good. You huff and pull her into your place. Congratulations. I can't fly this thing with Shori dead. You are nominated to go do piloty things. You point to the planet. I need to go there. They have a maintenance bay for AI, and I want to go there, so please make it so. You tap a couple buttons on the panopticon to transfer visuals to the nice new view screen that you have, so that you have something to watch, 
something to watch other than Mercedes botching up the controls and annoying you with her incompetence. There are a couple rough moments that make you grit your teeth and hope that Hoshi really is in a coma and not experiencing whatever debauchery Des is doing to the main propulsion system. But eventually, you hear the comforting whine of the mining colony's AI station master peen into the computer and provide the access codes they were nice enough not to have good security for. You let out a nice sigh of relief as Des bumps and grinds Shori into the landing docks with a minimum of fuss. Though Hoshi is probably going to have to grow her some new skin after that last one, you think, wincing in sympathy. Des must be out of practice. Hey, Des, I don't know if you... You stop because Des is not paying attention to you. Her complete attention is fixed on the corridor leading to the docking bay for a good four or five heartbeats. And then, still without saying anything, she leaps up and takes off in a blur of color and motion. You glance at Hoshi, still silent and frozen, and back to the corridor leading to the docking station. Fuck, you say. Sorry, stud. I'll be right back. When you get to the docking bay, Des is opening the personnel door to the airlock. As the vacuum vents and stabilize, you come up to stand next to her and anxiously check her face. It's frozen in some sort of expression you don't understand, so you look back to the airlock door. Someone opens it from the outside. Des doesn't move. You scowl. Hey, from a security standpoint, don't you... But you trail off because Des isn't listening to you and you're too busy processing what has walked into your docking bay. A girl. No, wait, not a girl. A shell? You peer at her. She's a tiny thing, barely five feet tall, long silver hair, and blue-black skin that looks very synthetic to your eyes. You slip your vision into a broader spectrum and see that, yes, she's a shell. A very good one. Maybe even a mentum, like you? No, not a mentum. Not any cybernetic augmentation. But what is she? Next to you, Mercedes exhales and says, Seema. You look at the monk in surprise. You know this thing? The shell smiles at you and says, of course she knows me. She takes a step deeper into the bay. We go way back, don't we, Lirandar? You're dead, said Des. Have the decency to stay that way. Seema shrugs. Dead, living, the two are closer than you might think. Besides, you weren't my first rodeo. You think I'm not used to rough breakups? Mercedes seems unable to come up with a clever retort and seems to be having a hard time breathing. You nudge her. Hey, what's the deal? Is she friend or foe or... You eye the shell and wish you had Zubeda, though the little pistol on your thigh would do the job. Are we just letting the shell come on board and offering it tea and crumpets? Mercedes looks at you in surprise. Shell? Seema bursts out in laughter. You raise your eyebrows like you've seen Des do, and it gives you a little satisfaction to see her understand the gesture. You mean you didn't know? You walk forward a couple steps and lightly tap the shell experimentally. She lets you do it, which you appreciate, and she doesn't seem to want to hurt anyone, so you keep going. Nat shell. Just no soul stone implant. You brush the shell's hair back a little. How are you moving around, Nat? Without a soul stone, you must be remotely controlled, but you can't finish. The little natural shell has whirled and stabbed you with something that feels very, very cold running into your data processor. Quicker than any natural should be, she brushes a tiny sound against your ear before the darkness wraps you up with a bow. Mother says hello. No. 
Chiyoko. It's dark, like always, but today the dark feels more intense, darker. You chide yourself for thinking stupid things, but the quiet is harder on you today than usual. The last session had been particularly bad, and you try to swallow remembering the pain as they cut pieces of your shell out to harvest your void essence. But then you remember you don't have a shell anymore. You can't swallow. There's only the ever-dark and the wine of the plasma field containing you here. For how long? No way to tell. For a brief moment, you have a deep, violently bitter hatred of your immortal nature. At least death would be a release, you think, before the usual guilt butts in and demolishes that thought. The plasma burns you, but that pain has subsided to just sort of a background annoyance. It's the dark that really bothers you, and the quiet. No voices. No sound other than the high-pitched whine like tinnitus of the soul all around. All alone in the great, empty room. What you wouldn't do for some kind of intelligent contact or the ability to void phase. Just go back to that comforting emptiness of non-existence. Nothing like this. You reach out in your mind like always looking for Jiro. Sometimes you can almost see him, almost hear him. Though lately, the images you've seen have been disturbing at best, terrifying at worst. You feel another stab of guilt for leaving him alone. I'm sorry for leaving you. I'm so sorry for everything you think. But it doesn't help. Nothing helps, just drifting here in a lonesome magnetic field with occasional harvesting days. It's less painful now that the shell is dead, so that's something. You try to cheer yourself. But it doesn't work. Nothing works. You can feel your depression intensifying, and you let it. What does it matter anyway? The room's door opens. It gets your attention. The harvesters have plasma wands and can do it remotely now. No one comes in with you physically. It's hard to see through the field binding you. It warps and wefts the air and your sense of time outside. You can't tell if the woman standing before you has been there a second or a day and her words seem to drift through time and space similarly confused. You can't understand her. The frustration is almost palpable both from her and from you, but the containment field is just too strong and in too many dimensions to make communication possible. After some time, the woman disappears and the door shuts again. You wish you could still cry. Seconds or maybe decades later, you can't tell. The door opens again, and excitement makes you glow your usual electric blue. Something feels different about today. Something special was going to happen. The usual whine of the plasma field changes tone and then disappears. Silence and real noises wash over you all at the same time, and you drink in the sensation of knowing what is happening, when, as you finally link up to the same reality with a feeling of snapping a dislocated joint back into place. A sharp, sweet sensation to a creature used to feeling nothing but pain. Instantly, you can hear the thoughts and feelings of everything around you. With a sudden jar, you know you're in a space station ran by Thiel Industries. You know you've been there for almost two decades. You know the entire crew complement and all the things that you usually don't want to know. But now, you gulp it down like you were offered water when dying of thirst. You also know what the woman standing in front of you is. 
and it makes you nauseous, or it would if you still had a body. Jocelyn Birkenthiel, Chief Executive Officer of the biggest genetic megacorporation in the galaxy. What an honor, you think to yourself, and what an idiot. You would have shaken your head with the stupidity of it. She came in unarmored, unprepared. It's like she doesn't even know that I'm a psionic, you think. As the woman continues to examine you and make noises at you, you realize that she doesn't understand what you are, that you can read her thoughts directly, all of them, that the words she's saying are meaningless, empty constructs. Hope starts rising in your heart. She has no idea what I can do, you realize. And to be fair, it's been many years since you've been able to do anything. You never got any more than the rudimentary juvenile training before your gifts fully manifested. But you feel strong and very, very superior to the meat sack standing in front of you. But you listen to both the things spoken and not spoken, and you learn. She has lost something, something precious to her, something with too much power and too much cost to remain unlost. She wants you to find it for her. The woman walks to the door, opens it, and pulls a shell into the room. She tells you that this could be yours. A body. The thought makes you glow again in excitement and the woman notices. It's not a pontifex. She doesn't trust you and she thinks that giving you a gnat shell will keep your powers contained. Stupid woman, you think. If I wanted to, I could crush your mind like a bug. I could take your body if I wanted. If I wanted, you stop. This woman had just offered you an escape plan, a life, a whole world if you were clever enough. Could I take her and Theo? The woman was still trying to convince you to work for her, talking about wealth and privilege as if those things mattered. But the body... You let the woman talk, your attention taken up with the shell. It was small, obviously genetically engineered for space work. Skin engineered for radiation protection, low energy stores, but high usage possible. It was reasonably attractive. Black skin, white silver hair, delicate features. You had to calm your mind from the greed and excitement the thought of taking a body flooded into your system. Your sense of yearning was almost physical. Almost, but not quite. You bring your attention back to Birkenthiel. She had finally stopped talking. You reach out a delicate mental touch to her mind and recoil a little in surprise. Someone had put some strong defenses around her after all. A localized magnetic field in just the right spot meant that she could hear you, but you couldn't control her or tap into any of her personality centers. Disappointing. Your attention drifts back to the gnat shell, the pretty, accessible gnat shell. It's too tempting. Freedom. Finally freedom. And maybe something more, if you can work it right. You touch the older woman's mind again, this time speaking loudly and clearly to her to make sure she hears. I accept. Her eyes open wide as if she wasn't expecting that contact and didn't find it terribly pleasant, but you don't care, because you're already rushing into the soul stone of the gnat, breathing with her nose, feeling the air with her skin, and wallowing in the thick experience that material beings take for granted every day. When you finally open your eyes, you're looking up at the woman and admire her face with your new perceptions. She smiles down on you. Welcome to Thiel Industries, Seema Birkenthiel. I'm sure this is the beginning of a beautiful relationship. 
It's a pleasure doing business with you. You reach out a hand to draw it along Birkenfield's face and shiver at the rush of experience and perception, both physical and mental, that touch augments. Indeed, you say with your new voice, testing out Seema's words on her tongue. I can't wait to get started. Episode 21. Hoshi. It's early, much too early to try and uncoil out of bed and make your way to the command center, but something feels off. It's a shame because you are very comfortable. Kaz has curled around you in a very cuddly way and has that sweet softness that you only get to see when sleeping. Awake, Cass was mostly asshole, not sweetness. The juxtaposition was cute. And the bunk is warm and a haven of irresponsibility. But that nagging sense of wrongness is only getting stronger, and you can't shake the feeling that maybe something went wrong with the Panopticon installation, or Shori's sick, or something miserably practical and important requires your attention. You sigh a little with regret and extract yourself from Cass's surprisingly tight grip and make your way to the control center. Back in the day, before Kaz, before Dez, when it was just you and Shori, you had almost looked forward to sleepless nights. The stillness of space and the slow sweep of the universe around you was timeless, a gentle reminder of the void, only in living technicolor, and you'd spent many hours with her just drifting through nothingness, enjoying being the only two living creatures in the whole universe. You got that feeling now as you settle into the interface and feel... Shori's mind fold around you in relief. You were right, there was something wrong, but it was something subtle and oddly familiar, a taste of bitterness in the sweet. It almost reminded you of how Kaz's mind tasted when the mentum was on snow. But that's ridiculous, you say to yourself. I wouldn't make a mistake like that. Can't be Cass. Hello, little brother. Nice night for a stroll, isn't it? The mind voice is like a gong in the silence. In Shori's interface, you turn to see Chiyoko in her sunyata form. She flickers in and out of your mental vision like lightning through the clouds. Chiyoko? You're whispering, but you don't notice it because you haven't seen her in years, and there was something viscerally off about her that you just couldn't place. I think I have a problem with tense. <laughs> oh, I think Rain told me that a lot. Chiyoko, is that you? What are you? You reach out to touch her, but she slips away, back into the clouds, and you let go of your shell form to follow her into the void. Brother, she says, I've missed you, you know that? She's changed the visualization to be their old house. You're in the garden, settling on the balcony in your juvenile forms. I know, I could feel you sometimes over the years, you say, but I could never talk with you. How is this, you wave to the visualization, possible? Shori, she smiles. I figured out I can't talk with you alone, but the interface means that our different brains can finally meet up. She looks at you with a mischievous expression. Aren't you happy I'm so clever? You don't answer. Chi-chan, I felt you all these years. You don't smile back at her. Something has changed. She sighs and looks out over the garden again. Yes, it has. Things were done, choices were made. Is that why you're looking for me? 
You nod. There's a long moment of silence. I never wanted to get you involved in this, you know. The shell is the only thing we want. Just let us have it and you can go home. Go live your life. Leave. She looks at you with that intense confidence you remember from her as a juvenile and it makes you a little melancholy. You know I can't do that. You shrug. That shell is a person now, you know. Kaz. We're sort of attached, I guess. At least that's what Des says. She gives you a surprised look. Of course it's not a person. It's a mentum. The only functional mentum in the galaxy. Bought and paid for in blood and power. She stops for a moment as if looking at something only she can see. Like all shells. You can't have Cass, you say again, more firmly this time. She doesn't respond to you. You try again. Look, Chioko, I don't know what you are now. I don't know what you had to do. Believe me, I understand that morality becomes flexible when you have limited options. But why are you helping Thiel? They killed almost our entire species to manufacture a drug that, that liquefies people just to jack up shells to help them with world domination. I mean, seriously, what's, what's the loyalty here? Just come with us and we'll go do something heroic and fundamentally flawed that's honorable and be the stuff of folk legends and, you know, songs. She leans her head back and laughs wholeheartedly. You scowl. I wasn't trying to be funny. She wipes her eyes. And that's what makes it so hilarious. She lets her chuckles die off for a moment. Jiro, what are we supposed to do on our own like that? We're hunted animals alone. At least I have a chance to take Thiel down from the inside this way. She stops. Is that what you're doing? You try to prompt her. You're trying to take apart Thiel? At first, I suppose, she seems pensive. You know, it's easy to talk about freedom and honor when you don't have anything, when you're not responsible for anyone. You're confused. You sound like a Terran bureaucrat. What are you, middle management now? Mm, sort of, I suppose. I like being in charge of things, Jiro. I like having power. I like having people depend on me and be able to make decisions that matter. I like it when they're afraid of me. Fear tastes so sweet. She cocks her head to the side. What are you doing with your life? Whoring out to miners and station merchants for a few plasma relays and next month's food ration? Is that the freedom you want me to have? You stop and blink in surprise. I guess I never thought of it before. It's always just been a matter of surviving until tomorrow. She nods. Yep, but then... Twenty years have passed. You can't protect Kaz. You can't protect Shori. You're just another trophy to some whooshing dragon hunter year after year after year. And you're trapped, just like me. She gives you another smile. At least climbing the corporate ladder gives me something to do. And the golden handcuffs are very pretty. She looks at her wrists as if she can see them. And the power is addictive, so much better than the void. She closes her eyes as if experiencing something private, then opens them to look at you directly. Go home, Jiro. Leave Kaz. Hell, leave Des as well. She gives you a smile with a lot of teeth. She's an interesting woman. I guess my shell's former operator and her were very close at one time. I wouldn't mind getting to experience that mindfuck with her for a millennia or two.
What are you talking about, you ask in confusion. Des is a monk. She doesn't play sex games or mind games. Immune, as far as I can tell. She shrugs. All the more fun to break her, then. It's something to do. Jiro, brother, listen to me. Do you know how long forever is? You shake your head. No one does, because time and space are all folded up for me. Do you understand? Do you know what a curse it is to be bored and in pain forever? Why are you in pain, Onisan? I can help you, you say, trying to hold one of her hands. Taking away pain is my specialty. She shakes you off. You don't understand yet. Give it a few more decades and then we'll talk. Trust me, living is a horrifying experience. Dying is a horrifying experience. Nothingness is a horrifying experience. All reality is just suffering. Chiyoko, you breathe out, feeling her mental agony keenly, but for once not having the right gift. I'm, I'm so sorry for everything. She turns away from you. Chiyoko, please don't be like this. I don't know what to do. The last comes out almost childlike. It's an echo from that long ago night when their lives changed so abruptly. And you can tell she's thinking of it as well. Go home, brother. Go home and leave me alone. Find some nice clinic on a backwater planet and heal until your pontifex burns out and the void swallows you again. Just stop trying to get involved in things you don't understand. I understand that I want to help you, you say, trying to get her to turn back to you, trying to comfort her with just words, trying to make some sort of connection as you feel her pulling further away. Chiyoko, I'm not a mind healer, but I can help you a little. Come with me. Let go of Thiel. Just come be a person for a while, and things will be better. She looks at you, finally, but it's with an expression you don't understand. Things will never get better, brother. And for you, they are about to get much, much worse. She sighs. You can't save me, Jiro. You can't save anyone. You always were too soft. Shame you haven't learned from your mistakes. Your sister places her palms together and the interface around you starts unwinding. Shori's mind begins to tear and warp in ways. That confuse and frighten you. Chiyoko, you scream and you're flung far away on a black churning seascape thick with storm clouds and lightning. Chiyoko, why? I love you, don't leave me. But it's too late. You're trapped in Shorei's insanity as Chiyoko strips all the neural connections raw and stimulates a random cacophony of noise all around you. Mercedes. You're following a shadow, both in the physical world and in your mind. You can feel the natural shell slipping along the darkness of the corridor she's led you into. She skipped past Shori's airlock and is now deep in the outpost's ruined wings. It obviously used to be an extensive gas mining colony. The infrastructure is there. But you can only sense people on the far side of the planet, far past this abandoned section, and the mines that greet you on that far side are simple, weak, and focused purely on survival. Not like the thing in front of you. That mind is intense. Stronger than anything you've ever encountered, but very, very familiar. A void dragon. 
You wonder where she's going in this maze of ruined metal and supplies, and you wonder how a natural shell can move so much more quickly than you, you with your whooshing dragon mark of air and storm stamped between your shoulder blades. You exhale gently and let the current of air slip under your feet to carry you faster along the corridor, but the shadow in front of you doesn't get any closer. If anything, she feels like she's moving even further away from you. How is she doing this, you wonder? How can she move this quickly, carrying Cass in the dark with only a natural shell? Something occurs to you. You stop and look more closely at the base around you. The layout looks familiar, and there's something naggingly important about the markings along the overhanging doorways. You move to the closest one and brush away the dust and grime. The familiar logo of Wuxing stares back at you. No, it couldn't be, you think as you move to a nearby utility closet and tap the backup power access panel. It opens with a command that you thought you would never have to use again, your personal pin as a Lorander pilot. You flip one of the emergency breakers. A distinctive click reverberates through the hallway and one by one lights flicker on in the hull. You know exactly where you are. This is the flagship Ayumu, your mother's ship. Not a station, not a colony, impossible. Something else occurs to you. That's enough, whoever you are, you call out into the emptiness. I'm tired of playing your little game. If you wanna talk, come and talk. Otherwise, give me Kaz back and we'll call it a day. You feel something snap in your mind, or rather mental inertial fields shift and the natural shell that looks like Seema is standing in front of you. No sign of Cass. You're abruptly bored and annoyed with the whole thing. Stop it, you say again. There's no need of all of this. You wave to the Wuxing ship. I haven't been my mother's daughter for years. Sima pouts at you. You recognize, recognize the manipulation, note it, and put it in the back of your mind. She's wearing the same simple, streamlined uniform that you wore once, and you're surprised at the small twinge of nostalgia that you feel seeing it. Well, maybe I am more of my mother's daughter than I thought. It's not a comforting realization. You close your eyes and focus, trying to break through whatever mental illusion the sunyata has wrapped around you, but it's too strong. Or you're too weak. Same difference. You can't snap out of it. The walls of the Ayumu remain stubbornly solid around you. How irritating, you think. You're ruining the fun, you know, Sima says. You shrug. I don't particularly care. What do you want? She sighs. I wanted to play with you a little. The last Seema's memories of you were much more interesting. You have my condolences, you say dryly, but I still don't care. Kaz, please, and if you wouldn't mind going away, that would be very convenient. She drops a pout. Monk, if you're not going to play, there's no reason to keep you alive. Aren't you curious where your family is? She motions to the Lorandar crest near the utility closet. You don't care about this ship? I assume it's just an illusion to try and evoke an emotional response in me, you reply, and I'm not interested in participating. I thought I made that clear. It's not an illusion, she says, tapping the hull. I killed the operational group and took over the family, with Birkenthiel's help. She looks at you as if expecting a response. I am whooshing now. Doesn't that mean anything to you? No.
No, you say. We all die. All things change. I am sorry that you feel the need to be an agent of destruction, but that's hardly unique among people like you. People like me? She cocks her head to the side. And what would you know about people like me? You hear what's under her words. Pain, loneliness, a deep craving for power from someone who's had nothing for a long, long time. We have a lot in common, you and me. I made some assumptions. You run a mental probe along the cold void linking the shell to whoever was controlling it. You can hear barely restrained violence, deep sensitivity, and a grief so intense that it makes you wince. It's the same chaotic mind you felt near the old city several worlds ago, and a number of things fall into place. You've been following us for a while. You're Chiyoko, aren't you? The one Hoshi has been searching for. She glares at you, and you can feel a moment when she loses her mental control. You are not fun, she almost hisses. You were supposed to be different. Your eyebrow twitches up slightly in almost surprise. Was I? How inconvenient for you. What do you want to do now, Chiyoko? You've done your best to hurt Hoshi. You have your precious mentum. Are you happy? You have all the power. You open your arms as if in to take, the, take in the whole ship. You have a whole corporation at your beck and call. You have the Sunyata metasionic gifts. You are the most powerful person in the whole galaxy. You let your arms fall back to your sides. Is it enough yet? I'll kill you, she says after a moment. The words are almost gentle, more exploratory than, than a threat. Doesn't that make you afraid? No, you say, and take a risk to reach out to her. She doesn't stop you as you lay a hand on her shoulder. Death can be a relief, not a punishment. She doesn't say anything. What do you want, Chiyoko? What do you want to do with all this power that you have? She shakes you off and you step back, feeling the intrinsic discomfort that caused her to do it. I certainly can't stop you. Cass can't. Hoshi can't. You shrug. You win. There. Is anything different? You close your eyes to listen more carefully to the leaks in her mind stream. Vague thoughts and something you don't quite understand seeps into you, and you open your mouth without thinking, channel channeling that ineffable thing. Why did you leave Moira Birkenthiel alive, Chiyoko? Why are you working for a mere human? Why did you look so hard for Cass? Why did you follow Jiro all these years? Chiyoko has seemed to shrink in on herself when you open your eyes, and she seems to be shaking slightly. But you can't tell if that's mental strain on your part or actual emotion on hers. It's hard work, this. Hard mental effort to see her, and you can feel yourself getting more tired by the second. You weren't supposed to be like this, she whispers. Stop it. Maybe you left Birkenthiel alive because you miss your mother. Maybe because you're so lonely that the tiniest comfort or connection is all you have and you can't bear the thought of killing your one link with the physical world. Maybe you can't stand the thought of being alone with yourself and all the things you've done. You pause. After all, you used to be Sunyata, didn't you? One of the great houses. What would your mother say if she could see you now? My mother is dead, Chiyoko shouts at you. Between one heartbeat and that shouted phrase, you see her as the same broken child that Hoshi is, 
still filled with fear and despair that never left from a lifetime ago. So she is, you say quietly and with genuine compassion, and she's never coming back. Chiyoko screams, not just a physical scream. This scream rips through your mind and the halls of your mother's dead ship as space and time ripple and sheer apart. You drop to your knees to hold your hands over your ears, even though you know it won't help. It's an instinctive reaction against not just the noise, but the anguish that you feel behind it. And then it cuts off, brutally, sharply aborted in a way that makes you throw yourself to the side without conscious thought as a fireball explodes through the corridor where you just were. Monuments of flame blossom from all sides as the Ayumu starts to come apart, the illusion fading with each yellow, red, and green purple burst as metal burns and chemical tanks explode. Hmm, I think we've overused that. Let's find a synonym. <laughs> Once again, it's just the ruins of a colony. Once again, you can hear the Mayans on the far side of the world. Once again, you can feel Shori's mad presence just beyond the far airlock. You start to run, capturing another hot gust of air from still another mental explosion to lift your feet and carry you back to the ship. Faster, must go faster, you think, grabbing another Zephyr and another and flinging yourself into space itself cocooned in their tiny bubbles of oxygen to carry you to Shori. I can't die quite yet, you tell no one in particular. Just let me make it to Shori in one piece and we'll go find this mad woman. You say it like a small prayer reaching into that deep place of courage and dharma that makes the emptiness bearable. Not yet. Don't die yet, Chiyoko. We are coming. Episode 22. You are almost awake, mostly conscious. You crack one eye open, then the other, then decide it's not worth it and close them again. You seem to be missing a good chunk of processing power and your mouth tastes like blood and electrified wires. Your internal sensors warn of structural damage and some sort of chemical imbalance that's making bile rise in your throat and everything smell like burning hair. You touch your head. Nope. The burning hair smell is because my hair is on fire. You pat it out. It was just a little on fire. But now that your eyes are waking up and at least one processor is coming back online, you can see flames in the distance through the tiny window set into your room, and you are in a room. From the pressurizing seals and the ports, you'd guess that someone threw you, rather hastily, into a backup communications room on some sort of station, a small one given the limited power requirements that that equipment needed. You set up, sit up a little and take another survey. Well, that was stupid. Who puts a mentum in a communications room? Dummies. You rub your head a little as piercing pain shoots through your skull and then sits right above your left eye. Ouch. You close that eye. The pain doesn't improve. Life choices, Cass. Life choices. And this is why we can't have nice things. You drag yourself to the communications console and tap the comm badge. A loud, piercing shriek greets you. You shut it off immediately. The pain over your left eye surges in intensity. You fumble one of the earpieces off the interface and try to tap into it using your digital audio interface, 
and another shriek reverberates through your skull and this time you black out. When you wake up again, you can feel instantly that the station or ship or whatever you're on has shifted position and by a lot. The characteristic whine of engines now pulse underneath and around you, almost comforting. It wasn't quite Shori's rhythmic heartbeat, but it was better than the cold nothingness that had been there, and your subconscious seems to appreciate the familiarity. You eye the communications console sourly, but don't try again. Instead, you draw your legs up on the floor and sit with your head against the cold wall, listening to the engines and cataloging data. Your mentum systems are mostly offline. Some sort of electromagnetic pulse or plasma wave or something has knocked most of you into sleepy time. The organic processors still seem functional, and your chemical body modulation systems are still working. You mentally touch the almost completed viral carrier code in your data banks for reassurance. Well, maybe we'll get lucky and mother has found me, you think a little dourly. I don't know if I'm going to be rescued, though. You take another look out of the tiny viewing window. The stars don't look familiar, and your head hurts anyway. You close your eyes again in defeat that you tell yourself is just rest. Oh, fuck my life. What's the use of having a magical Superman boyfriend if he doesn't rescue you? Relationships are a lie. The ridiculousness of the thought makes you laugh a little at yourself. Who would have thought a shell would even be capable of having a boyfriend? Or a mother? Especially a mother who is trying to kill it and a boyfriend who is trying to save it. You laugh harder. What even am I now? You wonder yourself, to yourself in vague amusement. Who knows? After a moment, you glance at the console again and probe whatever electromagnetic field is around the room with your organic sensors, which don't work nearly as well as your electronic ones. You cross your arms over your chest in irritation and your fingers brush your little laser pistol. You blink in surprise. Who would possibly be that stupid? Take a prisoner without checking their pockets. Maybe they just thought a mentum wouldn't be capable of doing physical things. Racist bastards. You think with a smile and start shaking out your pockets. Since living with Hoshi, you had started hoarding useful things fairly consistently. The thought of making him do anything to get your supplies had become distinctly unpalatable, unpalatable, presumably after that little episode with Daiki, and his complete mechanical ineptitude had disturbed you to the point where you were actively capable of making literally anything out of whatever trash you could dig up on Shori or on whatever BFE civilization the slutty monster dropped you on. This had obviously proved to be a very successful survival strategy for your new life. Before you, in a tiny pyramid of pocket goodies, was a small collection of non-Terran coins, a nearly empty plastic credit chip, a delightfully chewed and tangled ball of wire, a wearable eye comp for Shori's interface, and a small wooden carving of some ancient one that you'd picked up accidentally from the kit you'd stolen from Zubeda. You didn't know what it was for or of, but it was pretty in a sort of chaotic, angry way. You steeple your hands on your knees and rest your chin on your fingers, observing the messy pile before starting to smile. Someone has profoundly underestimated me. Now then, let's see what a proper mentum can do, shall we? You don't struggle when they come for you. It takes a good bit of dumping calming chemicals into your bloodstream, but the faceless uniforms that drag you out of the room are wearing your old uniform, and that sets off a whole bunch of feelings you weren't quite prepared for. 
It's extremely uncomfortable, and you shamelessly max out your tranquilizers all in one go. It helps less than you were hoping, and you decide that getting angry is a much more effective solution than giving in to the incapacitating, gibbering fear clawing at your guts as you walk past a series of very familiar hallways and stop in front of a very familiar set of doors. When one of your escorts leaves to announce you, you feel a sudden loss of balance. You can't tell if that's because of the intense electromagnetic field being generated from somewhere inside, or because you're pretty sure you know who's waiting for you in the room. You would really prefer not to go in. Your escorts don't seem to care about that opinion, however, and the giant sloth of a man on your left shoves you in without much ceremony at the invitation of his ogre partner. The door shuts behind you, and you're only a little ashamed of the tragic crack in your voice as you say, Hello, mother. You're looking old. Been a rough couple decades, huh? She seems confused by your greeting, and it heartens you a little. You walk deeper into the room. You remember this place. To your right, the office quarters are inset into a separate room. You specifically avoid looking through the doorway. You know what the stainless steel instruments and growth chambers in that room look like already, and you're not in a hurry to remember any of that garbage too soon. Her public rooms are fairly unremarkable. She waves you to sit in front of her. As you sit, you can feel your organic bits settle and send up little triggers of pain as muscles you didn't even know you had suddenly relax into the chair. It's been a while since you've been in this much pain. At least, the physical kind. Hoshi had made sure of that for you, and now you're spoiled. You make a little surprised noise at the unexpected sensations, and you can sense her amusement at you. Annoying. You scowl and feel a pang of loneliness for Hoshi, the big lug. Kaz, welcome. She gives you a patronizing little smile. You've been away from home so long, I almost didn't recognize you. I wish you didn't, you bite back. You could just leave me alone, you know. You have plenty of pets. Why not just let me rot in some backwater of the universe and we'll call it even? She clucks her tongue at you and shakes her head. Oh, my dear Cass, what am I to do with you? She shakes her head melodramatically. Here you are, brain the size of a planet, brilliant. All the secret bits of Thiel Industries trapped inside your beautiful processors and you want me just to leave you out there in the cold and the dark? There's no telling what would happen if you fell into the wrong hands, or what damage you've already done. That last statement comes out sharp and precise, and the look she shoots you isn't patronizing or false. That's genuine fear, you think, a little surprised. Mother, you know I don't know anything worthwhile, you say carefully. You didn't... You had thought that this conversation would be different somehow. If you'd even actually have to have it. Mostly, you would hope to be dead before this scenario played out. I'm just a shell. You don't have to worry about what I know or don't know. It's not like I'm a real person. Somehow, that seems to disturb her more. She gets up to pace in front of one of her viewing windows that spans the entire back wall of the chamber. You take it as an opportunity to look for her electromagnetic shielding device. It's annoying and giving you a headache, and if it's on, it will be harder for you to infect her computer systems. She seems engrossed in her own thoughts, or whatever is happening outside her window. Kaz, she says, but then pauses, and you reel your attention back to her to prevent suspicion. Kaz, I may have gotten myself into a little bit of trouble. She turns to you, and you can't recognize the expression on her face. 
It's not one that you've seen before, and you feel a moment of regret that Des isn't here to explain it to you. I need your help. What? You say, cleverly. You need my help? To do what? I thought you've been trying to kill me for all these years. Kill is such a harsh word, dear. Let's just say that I've wanted to have you back home in one way or another for a very long time. There's another long pause, and your attention is captured by a small black triangle hooked onto the bottom of one of her decorative panels at the side of the room. You get up and, as nonchalantly as possible, slap your improvised disruptor device on it and move to stand next to the woman who made you. Immediately, the whine in your head dies down, and you can't help the little sigh of relief that whistles out of you. She looks at you with interest. Pretty, you say, motioning to the slow sweep of the stars out beyond the viewing windows. Where are we? She chuckles and pats you on your arm. I'm not that stupid, dear. I did not become a CEO of one of the galactic corporations by being dumb. I beg to differ, you think, but manage to control your face well enough. So if you're so smart, what do you need my help with? She looks back out at the stars and you take the chance to take another quick once over of the room. You need to find an upload port or something since your wireless interfaces still don't seem to be working. I'll need a manual data port, you think, trying to be as inconspicuous in your survey as possible. I've hired a bit of a wild card, Cass. It was to find you, since you are so precious to me. She flashes you a smile that might actually be genuine. But now that you're here, I find that this new employee is a bit much to handle. I think her resources could be managed much more effectively in a new role within the company. Okay, you say not really care caring. You weren't going to help her anyway. Do you remember that biochemistry project you helped with ages ago? The last project before you ran away? Ran away? For some reason, the patronizing dismissiveness of her sum-up bothered you. You scowl. Didn't run away, but yes. And again, all you can see in your mind's eye are the stainless steel instruments, the dead stacks of Pontifax shells, the blood and desperate despair in the Sunyata's eyes as they were harvested over and over again. You shudder a little and rub the special port in your hand where snow could be administered and the addictive beauty of what it did to you. She notices. We never expected you to be alive, you know. You were very clever to find a way to break that tie. It should have been po impossible for you to survive, dear. How did you, anyway? I didn't do anything, you think. Mom, you should meet my boyfriend. The irony of this relationship could just kill her for us. But you shrug. Black market drugs, the diluted and synthesized stuff. None of it was as good as the pure essence from the labs, but it was close enough to keep me going. Hmm. She looks you up and down. You look good for what you've had to do all these years. What if I could offer you the essence again? She reaches over to flip a small switch near the wall. A hidden cabinet rotates out and reveals vials of electric blue luminous snow. Pure snow. The literal essence of the dead, trapped in silicate. You shiver with the memories and she notices. You know that a tiny application of the stuff would probably reset your mentem systems and take away all your pain, restore all of your systems to full capacity. 
You close your eyes so you can't see it anymore. God, it would feel so good to be able to think again. All that sweet information flooding through me. You swallow. What do you need, Mother? A containment system. You look at her, really look at her, and are vaguely surprised by the lines and thinness of her skin. She looks old, very, very old and tired. A containment system for what? That special employee I was telling you about. Your Sunyata containment systems were too complicated for anyone else to use after you left. The last ones were so clumsy, we ended up just killing all the specimens. We need something that will keep one of the void creatures alive indefinitely, but still allow us to harvest. She pauses as if seeing something in her mind that disturbs her. I didn't realize how powerful they really were. You snort a little. You have no idea, Mother. No idea whatsoever. What does that mean? You shake your head, laughing to yourself at the absurdity of the whole situation. You know what? Never mind. Kaz. She takes your hands, and you're surprised at how delicate they are, almost fragile in yours. You squeeze experimentally, and she doesn't pull away. Kaz, I'm sorry for the past. I really am. I don't know how to apologize properly or what I can say other than I've always thought of you as my child, my real child, not a shell or an employee. You start to contradict her, but then remember Dez's lectures about how people lie to themselves to protect themselves, and you shut your mouth. It wasn't about you at all. Please, Kaz, she motions to the snow. All of it is yours. You can have your own lab again, total freedom to invent, build, whatever you want. Anything you want, if you'll just come home and stay with me. She brushes your forehead and you have to fight not to recoil. She seems lost in her own world and you're just a prop for whatever dream she's having. It's a very uncomfortable sensation. You decide that it's not one of your favorite new emotions. She doesn't notice. I've always loved you like my own, Cass. Please stay. Help me. You take a deep breath and smile at her. Of course, Mother, I'd love to come home. Hoshi, please forgive me. Hoshi. So this is madness, you think. Interesting. I mean, not something I would go on holiday for or anything, but interesting. Booming, unnaturally loud voices echo around you in the dark, only to morph into glowing, slitted eyes that stare at you and catch fire. Space-time folding from dark to light, an ocean to a desert. Your ears pop and then seem to fill with fluid that somehow talks to you as if you're drowning on your own words. Time stretches forever and yet nothing seems to stay where you put it, not even your own body. Your void form dissipates, reappears, and splits itself into multitudes that all scream at you like the souls of the dead again and again and again. You can't tell what is you and what is the remains of one of your failed heels. Sometimes you're corporeal, other times your space itself or a poorly terraformed dust planet spinning around an exploding star. You're everything at once and something empty at the same time. All the thoughts you've ever had swirl around you and through you until you can't tell if you're the thought or the thought was part of you. There's only the maelstrom. Hoshi. The word sounds familiar, but you're already dead or a ghost. No, you're the ocean of the damned with the flexing of the moon. Jiro Hoshi. 
It's harsh static now, but the words appear like a vivid rainbow in the storm, and for a moment everything is clean and clear. You know who says those words from the future. No, the past. No, it's happening now. It was before. Mercedes, you send back in the time from the past when there was a friend to the star. You know that. Your name means star and to want. Who would want a star? You think in the moment between delusions, stars can't be touched. They burn everything to dust. Jiro Hoshi, can you see me? See? Can I see? What is seeing? There was only the storm. A flush of blood to your non-existent face that flexes and morphs in the mirror of your own mind. For a moment, you're in your old pontifex, held together with a spacesuit, and your HUD flickers and glitches, and you see Mercedes reflected in the glass. But then she's a dragon hunter, and she's holding a spear. And now she's wearing armor, and you're a hundred feet tall with wings and a tail bellowing fire at St. George, and she's burning. You can't get close to a star, you think, in the future. But the future is already dead, and you're walking through the ruins of your own mind, like an archaeologist searching for the past. Is this me? What am I? You hear a bell. Clear and sharp, it keeps reverberating long past when the sound should die. It keeps ringing, and the mental fog lifts. The maelstrom quiets. You're a sunyata, floating on a cliff over dark gray water, looking at a golden pink sunset. The bell chimes again. You're in your pontifex. You can feel the silver cord tying you to a body now. Your body. The one Mercedes and Kaz made for you. The familiar road home. You take a breath in and feel your lungs respond just like they should. Hoshi, can you hear me? The voice rings out of the sky like the bell, clean and clear. You open your eyes. Des. You exhale as you realize you're in the pilot's chair in Shori's command center, just where you should be. Mercedes is kneeling in front of you with her hands in hers. You smile at her, hiding broken, abject relief. Can I just say you have a lovely speaking voice? You surprise a laugh out of her, and as you lean your head into her shoulders in exhausted thankfulness for something real and solid, you want to think of something clever to say, but you realize that hot, unfamiliar tears are rolling down your shell face, and all you feel is grateful as Del pulls you down into a long, soothing hug. Des pulls you into a long, soothing hug. My head hurts, you manage to grind out of a thick throat. She rubs your back but doesn't reply, which is probably good. You've been hearing voices for a while, and the silence feels like a nice choice. So let me get this straight, you say on a long exhale. Kaz has been taken by Wu Xing as a present for Thiel in some sort of corporate power play, and my sister, who I thought was a helpless prisoner in Thiel, is actually the Wu Xing prefect who killed your family to get the job and is actually working for Moira Birkenthiel because she's lonely and misses her mother. You lean your elbows on the table so you can prop your chin in your hands and stare at Des with admiration. And you found out all this in a 10-minute conversation with my sister when she trapped you in a mental illusion of your mother's ship to try and play some sort of emotional blackmail game with you. You blink and just let that settle into your own mind for a second. Wow. You metapsionics are amazing, you know that? How do you live with people, like, regularly? How do you do this stuff? It's really remarkable. I mean, I joke that I'm a people person, but I've never heard of a metapsionic battle of wills and suspended manifestation and all that technical crap. Remarkable. 
Did the monks teach you that? Or Des raises her hand and clears her throat. Hoshi, please be quiet. You know very well it's almost impossible to talk to someone outside your discipline about technical stuff. Just shut up and accept it so we can talk about Kaz and Chiyoko. Quit trying to avoid it. I'm not trying to avoid it, you sulk. But she's right, and it'd be easier just to face it than to try to pretend anymore. Ugh, you say instead, and slip down deeper into the chair to rest your forearms on your eyes, again appreciating the solidity of having a body, singular, and a place where matter stayed put. You give her a pathetic little glance through your wrists. This sucks, you know. I don't want to deal with any of this. Des nods, and you sigh. Chiyo was supposed to be an innocent victim held safely in Thiel, and Kaz was supposed to be with us, and everything was going to work out fine. You sound a lot like your sister, and you know what they say. Plans rarely survive the first engagement with the enemy. You look at her warily. Are you going to kill Chiyoko for what she did to Lorandar? Dez shakes her head. No, why would I? She killed your family, right? Don't you want revenge? She shrugs. Revenge is stupid. Power struggles are stupid. We're all going to die. We're all going to die alone. There's no need to get upset about it. You should know that. You're practically immortal. Don't you just go back to the void when you die? You close your eyes, remembering the bardo and all the dead. Not exactly. If we have any essence left, yes, we just go back to the void, but not as ourselves. We stop existing, just like any other death. And it takes a huge amount of energy and the help of someone else to come back in any form after that. It's pretty awful to see all that emptiness. Des nods. That's what Chiyoko said. There's a long pause. Des, you say finally, what are we going to do? How are we even going to find Chiyo or Kaz? And do we even want to, she says quietly. That statement rocks you and you react without thinking. Of course we want to find them. How could we just abandon them like that? We, they need us. Do they? She says. And you can't understand the undertone behind the question, so you ignore the vague rustling of unease. Well, that's a stupid question. Of course they need us. Hmm. It's all she says, but she doesn't disagree with you. She just looks at the panopticon and then back to you. Then I think the new plan is the old plan. You follow her glance. The tracking system? She nods. We bring Shori back online. I can still pilot decently enough to run the Panopticon guidance system if Shori can keep propulsion. And we just follow the breadcrumbs. To Thiel? Where else would Kaz be? And Chio? Des shrugs. I would guess that Chioko wants to be as close to Birkenthiel as possible, regardless of how much she hates the woman. Why? You ask, confused. Wouldn't she want to be as far away from her as possible? Des shakes her head. I think she's come to see Birkenthiel almost like a parent. She's got some transference issues. And I think she may be trying to kill her and take over Thiel Industries in a coup. You frown. But that doesn't make any sense, Des. Why would she try and kill her parent if she does even feel that way about Birkenthiel? Des gives you a look you definitely don't understand. Nope, I don't like that. A droll look. You've obviously never dealt with women and their mothers, have you? You shake your head and she sighs. 
It's a very complex relationship. Your head would explode if I tried to explain it. Just go with me on this. You let out a low whistle. Women have it rough, don't they? You have no idea, my friend. No idea. Now, Des stands up and hauls you up beside her. Let's go be productive. I think Shori needs some new brain cells, and your sister did a number on her engine system. Go fix it, please. Yes, ma'am, you say, feeling in an altogether better mood for some reason. Monks are awfully handy to have around, you think. Very useful people, thank goodness.